in the grand tradition of our blockbuster events, Crisis Till Death and Death Till Wedding, the podcast returns to the Triangle Era for the infamous Electric Superman saga, Grant Morrison's legendary JLA, and Superman's TV depictions on the animated series and Lois and Clark. This is Electric Till One Million, a new eight-part epic covering 1997 through 1999. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Electric to One Million, Part 4. And joining me to discuss the JLA run by Grant Morrison and Howard Porter is returning guest, Ralph Puma. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me again. Really excited to dig into this one. This is a big one. This is a big one. So in this Electric to One Million event that we're doing, we're covering 97 through 99. And so Morrison's run... Morrison and Porter's run because I don't want to I don't want to discount Howard Porter. He brought so much to this t- to the table uh, in terms of bringing this run to life and uh, sort of translating Morrison's vision for all of these crazy ideas into something that was was just a, a beauty to behold. But anyway, this run started in '97 and wrapped in early 2000, so uh, it really spans this entire period that we're talking about over over these episodes. So I thought kind of midway through Electric to One Million would be a perfect time to delve into it. And also because obviously we are coming off of a couple of episodes discussing Superman's journey uh, as electric Superman. And that gets a fair bit of play uh, for a decent chunk of Morrison's run uh, from issues five until about, you know, 20 or so. So we're, we're with electric Superman in this JLA run for, for a good bit. Yeah. Um, he does some cool stuff with it too, that I will talk about, but I think that you know, when you have this new version of a character, you're able to just kind of put anything into it. So it kind of had like this vibe when he, how he treated Electric Superman when he showed up is kind of like the old like 60s and 70s writers did where they were like, oh, let's see, can let does this work for this character? And if it does, they'll drop it. I mean, if it does, they'll keep it or if not, they'll drop it and never talk about that power again. <laughs> I think if you if you poll DC fans about Electric Superman, the consensus typically seems to be that folks prefer how Morrison treated him in JLA over the way the regular super titles were dealing with him at the time. So we'll talk, we'll talk about all of that. And just to lay this out for folks, what Ralph and I focused on, we read or reread the core JLA issues written by Grant Morrison. So there were, by my count, I think eight fill-in issues by Mark Wade, Mark Miller, and J.M.D. Mateus. We skipped over those. They're great. I remember them very fondly, and we might touch on them in a future episode. But for this, we focused on the Morrison-written issues, uh, 1 through 41 of that JLA series. Now, if you're saying, hey, what about 1 million? Well, stay tuned, because in two weeks, we have an entire episode devoted to the DC 1 million event. Uh, So I think people will really enjoy that. And then I suppose one other big item in the in the Morrison JLA bibliography is the Earth 2 original graphic novel that Morrison wrote and Frank Whiteley drew. And I have plans to cover that in a summer event that we're building towards. So I would just say stay tuned. And so I just want to mention that because if anyone's like, hey, what about this? What about that? They're, they, they will be covered. But that's kind of what we focused on for this. So we were talking off mic about this. As much as we'll do the typical you know, deep dive analytical discussion that we always do and that hopefully the audience has come to expect and enjoy. This one, I think there's there's more of a personal component because 
this run, you and I have talked about this, was so formative for both of us in, in ways similar and different. So let me toss it to you first, because, you know, when this run came along in 97, I mean, I was already in comics. I was following all the Superman books. But for you, this was more or less your introduction to comics, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, prior to this, the only comics like I remember reading was like the Ben Riley Spider-Man issue that my mom got at like <laughs> like a deli and then the Green Lantern with Kyle Rayner. So like I had no introduction to like any of the originals. And like I think what got me into Green Lantern in the first place was walking around like the Cross County Mall and seeing um like when they used to have all the action figures and comic books laid out for like the flea market times when they would do that in Cross County indoors and I saw a parallax figure and I was like wait why is why is Green Lantern evil? And then like from that point on, I had to discover like why it all happened. And so shortly after, like we started going to alternate and then like this was like this comic was it. Like I remember every month I like needed to read this one the most out of anything because I felt like it gave me the most information about as many characters as possible. And I think it was accessible, like reading it again, it's so accessible for kids as well. It's so like fun at times. It's, you know, big concepts, but also in like manageable bites as well. And it never stops. I, I feel like this run is so relentless. <laughs> That's a good way of describing it. So you mentioned a couple of places. Cross County is this outdoor mall in Yonkers, New York. And there was a comic shop there for many years that I that I did go to. I suspect you did as well. Dragon's Den. Yeah, Dragon's Den. Yep. Dragon's Den. And then you mentioned Alternate. Alternate Reality is the comic book shop that, that we both worked at, and that's where we met. So did you start reading this from issue one, or was it a little bit underway and you caught up? What happened? Yeah, um, I definitely started reading this from issue one. I would have to get a better timeline of like where everything came in for me Like when that happens. I know that I was reading Nightwing as well. I'm not sure if that Nightwing run had started right prior to this and Impulse. So I know that those two were ones that I was reading. But I remember like reading these like every morning before school and then going into school and telling people like what had happened in them. And then like, we'd play it out in the schoolyard and like my action figures were all from this run. Like every like superhero action figure that I had was these ones. Like I had an electric Superman. I had, you know, uh, Kyle Rayner and it was all like the total justice ones too, where they had like the armor. And all you know, I meant to look these up before we sat down to record and, and, the day just got away from me, but I don't need to look them up because, man, I remember those figures. You had that Kenner Total Justice line, and then there was a subsequent yep. line from Kenner as well. But I remember those so fondly. And I, it's funny, I just did an episode of Summoning the Zords on the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie, and I was talking to Ken Marion about it. I was like, man, I wish I had kept my Power Ranger toys in a box. Like I could have looked <laughs> at them now and talked about them on the episode. Same thing with those Kenner figures. I remember those yeah. so fondly. I think what was so cool about those was that they were they were the characters that were in play in the comics at the time, right? So it really just felt like, hey, you're reading these comics and now you have these figures based on it. And, you know, I mean, I remember being a kid and, and you know, coming up with my own stories with the action figures and stuff. And it was just, oh man, that, that, was, that, that was a great line. I remember those Doing the fondly. same. I remember my dad uh, came into my room and I had arranged them all on my desk. I'd taken everything off of like my like, desk that I would work on for school stuff and I arranged them all in a circle and he's like what are you doing and I was like they're having a meeting dad <laughs> like, <laughs> like what 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 happens in these Justice League books is they're always around the table and discussing something at some point 
Yeah, this run, this run was huge. I, I think that, you know, whether you're well-versed in the DC mythology or, or a little bit more of a casual fan, you know, this is a run that always comes up that people know, that people recommend. And what's crazy is, I mean, I had not revisited this with the exception of Rock of Ages, which you and I yeah. touched on in an episode we did a while back. We talked about Final Crisis and Rock of Ages. So I had reread that recently. But otherwise, man... Oh, probably like 20 years, 15 or 20 years yep. since I went back to this. And look, it's always one of those things. I think we can all identify with this stuff that you love as a kid. And then you go back to it later and you, sometimes it holds up and sometimes it doesn't. And maybe part of the reason sometimes where we don't go back to things is because we're worried about how, <laughs> how we're going to perceive them. And you, you never want to have that feeling where it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I like this. I have to tell you, I had the best time going back and rereading this run. And it brought me right back. So like I said, I mean, I was reading the Superman. I've talked about this a million times, but I've been, I was reading the Superman books, you know, starting in 92, right? And now we're some five years into my career as a comic book reader, fan collector. And I'm yeah. essentially just reading the Superman books, right? My mom didn't really want me reading comics and it was sort of like one a week. And thankfully there was a Superman book a week and that was kind of it. And then I remember seeing that JLA was coming out and we probably talked about this in the other episode, but JLA 11 part two of rock of ages with uh, Luther and Joker on the cover. And they've got electric Superman and Martian Manhunter in that maze. I'm yeah. almost positive. That was the one that, that sealed the deal for me. And I was like, I have to pick this up. I have to get this. And I know I talked about this, but Brandon Montclair, who's now gone on to have this great career uh, in, as a comic book writer. And he was an editor before that. Uh, he was one of the owners of alternate realities at the time. And I remember JLA number 10, the first part of Rock of Ages had sold out and he was able to track down a copy, sold it to <laughs> me for $10. I'll always remember that. And, what a guy. And then I went back and I think at that point I was only able to add, nab uh, issue nine with the key because I definitely have this memory of reading that part two of that key two-parter <laughs> in yeah. a vacuum and not really knowing what was going on, but still loving it, loving all the Connor Hawk stuff. And it was great. And then thankfully, and this was, you know, kind of new at the time, DC was putting out the trades fairly quickly. So I remember getting the trades for uh, new world order and American dreams and catching up. And then of course I had all the single issues from rock of ages forward. And, you know, so for me, this wasn't my introduction to, to comics necessarily, but it just opened up this whole new world, right? Like the Superman books were great and I was I was all in on that. And I had met a lot of these characters, right? When they would guest star in the Superman books. But this was really the first time that I was just seeing the wider DC universe. And one of the best, purest, most uh, epic displays of it, no less. It yeah, was incredible. I think I, 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 there's no way that this book can like bring in anybody to comics. You know, you, you, you see why each character is good and each character kind of has their moments throughout each of the books themselves. And then they'll even have like moments within like an arc for themselves. It's really, it captures why the justice league is important. And it's like always defending itself. I feel like it's always like, this is why the justice league exists. Like it's always the, 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 the arc starts with, do we really need a justice league? Do we need to be here? And then it always ends with like, no, this is why we are here. It's very true. And as we get deeper into the run, there's all this talk about 
sort of what configuration of the league, what sort of structure, what sort of uh, membership uh, volume they need, right? And they have that whole recruitment drive and they expand the roster as they're preparing for this this threat uh, that, that they've been tipped off about, which we'll talk about. But uh, which, of course, is very reminiscent of Justice League Unlimited, right? The animated series where they expand yeah. their ranks and all of that. But yeah, there is a lot of discussion about their role and how they should go about it. What, what's funny is, I, I mean, I always think of this as my introduction to the Justice League, but of course, it it wasn't, it wasn't. Because <laughs> technically, <laughs> I met I met a Justice League in the Death of Superman storyline. That's true. But... <laughs> and are they really a Justice League? <laughs> that's the thing. Look, for any fans of that iteration of Justice League, that era of Justice League, if you love Fire, Ice, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Bloodwind, Maxima, awesome. You know, that's that's great. That, you know, to me doesn't hold a candle, right, to to the big 7 lineup that Morrison gave us. And of course, that would later expand, but really always revolving around that core 7 and I think that's why, as much again, as much as I had met a version of the Justice League before, it never really cemented in my mind because this was, and again, I think even fans of those characters would agree, a, a lesser league, right? And I, I know in that title they got to, you know, it delved more into humor, maybe more of the interpersonal relationships. Like it was its own thing. Yeah. But I don't think I ever came out of that, that Death of Superman 90s era really feeling like I had a... Uh, an attachment to, or even a great sense of what the justice league was. Cause what was my exposure to them? They're the team that gets decimated and, and, you know, sort of necessitates Superman being that last line of defense. So it doesn't necessarily conjure a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, attachment per se. So this is really what I consider my introduction to, to what I see the justice league as. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a, like the wrestling mentality. If you introduce a new wrestler, and they're just getting beat all the time, you're not going to sell as many action figures of that wrestler. <laughs> like, it's the same thing. You know, you create a character, and if they're, you know, the foil to tragedy, a lot of people are not going to want to connect with that. They want to connect with the characters that, like, embody the best of things. And I think that we can maybe talk, fit Aztec into that, too, because I feel like Aztec is always kind of dropping the ball in this series a little bit, you know? I know. He's supposed to be this big figure and like grant morrison and mark millar worked really hard on him but at the same time like he's not i i i remember not really caring about aztec as a kid and then reading through it again i was like oh this makes sense of why i i wouldn't when he's constantly like you know oh he was bought out by lex luther <laughs> like yeah, there's definitely that tragic element to this character where, you know, he was he was, you know, trained in this way and he thought he was preparing for this epic battle and everything and then he finds out that yeah, Lex Luthor was sort of behind everything, but there does end up being this big threat that he was preparing yeah. for. So there was that element of truth and he sacrifices himself. Did you ever read his 10-issue solo series? I tried a few years back and I didn't continue it, um, but it is on my list because, you know, big Grant Morrison fan. But for some reason, something about it just hasn't connected with me, even though I love like Aztec culture and like all that like South American history and lore. And so I have to keep trying. I'm going to try it at one point again once I I mean, it's in the app, I believe. I'm not sure, though. It is. So. Well, I'll give the DC app props for that. And everything that yeah. we're talking about here, it's all it's all in the app and all that, which which is great. 
And yes, that Aztec series is there. I've, I've, like yourself, I've made a couple of attempts and I never got all the way there, but, uh, you know, may, maybe at some point, but I guess I would be kind of curious to get more of a sense of what was going on with this character. He just kind of pops in and out of that JLA yeah. run, you know, has some key moments, but you know, it, it, it would be interesting to know a little bit more about what was going on kind of on his there side. There were some major guest stars too, that I didn't realize were in this. And like, now that I'm rereading it and their characters that i love i'm like whoa what i i was getting like excited seeing them pop in this time so, who, who are some of the ones that really stood out to you uh daniel from sandman yep. like had no no concept of what sandman was when i was a kid nothing but now that i've you know love sandman going see, seeing that was awesome and then later on animal man like kind of shows up and like sets everything in motion at one point near the end like he just kind of like walks in and is like takes care of business about like the lizard brain with the I believe it was the yeah I believe it was with Mageddon <laughs> for sure for sure no I have to say I think what what I was so struck by in rereading this I mean a, a few things one was just the the scope and scale of it and this just it it just felt big it felt important it felt like this book was kind of charting the course for the DC universe. It felt that way in rereading it. And then it also sort of brought me back to that time as a kid when I'm 10, 11, 12, 13, when I was f first reading this run and kind of having that same feeling then, like it just had this, this weight to it. So I was really struck by that. I appreciated all of the efforts to reflect what was going on in the characters solo titles at the time. And I'm sure if someone were to sit down and try to sync everything up, I'm sure there's some discrepancies, but this was during the time where Wonder Woman, Diana, died in her title, and then her mother, Hippolyta, took over, and the books reflected that. There's an issue at the very beginning of Rock of Ages where Flash is out of commission. He's injured, right? He had broken his leg in his own title. That was reflected here. Obviously, all the Electric Superman stuff. Uh, in a couple of those Mark Wade fill-in issues, they deal with the no man's land of it all, which was going on in the Bat books at the time. So I very much appreciated that. I thought that was a nice touch. And I think one of the other big things was, I guess in my head, I, I don't know, maybe I was conflating the trade paperback, those, I know we've had different permutations of the collected editions. Now there are those, you know, sort of the, the, the larger uh, volumes that collect, you know, a much bigger chunk. But going back to the first round of these collections, I guess I was always conflating the, maybe the titles of those. Uh, trade paperbacks with you know one continuous arc so in my head i was like yeah there's like you know four or five big stories in this run but going back so many they're like two parters three parters four yeah. parters they're not these you know massive sprawling epics i mean rock of ages and then world war three those are those are each six parts but other than that again two parters three parters four parters and i i really enjoyed the structure of it and i thought it was there was a really nice balance there what'd you think yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, I genuinely loved the key, like, two-parter. I That was one that, like, I remember, like, every aspect of it, because I, like, remember rooting for Connor so much as, like, a kid that, like, even now, it's such a cool storyline, you know? The entire Justice League is gone, and the guy who has no powers and isn't Batman is stuck with, like, these super-powered robots and, you know, <laughs> this, this guy who apparently has unlocked 90% of his brain. <laughs> This, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Connor. I, I, we had touched on this off mic for a little bit, but I, this was one of the big things that I wanted to talk about, which is we get that beautiful showcase of Connor Hawk, right? Who at this point in the comics has succeeded 
his father, Oliver Queen, who had who had died and would be off the board for a while. So he was he was our Green Arrow. Of course, uh, among the core seven of the Justice League, we have Wally West as the Flash. We have Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern. Uh, actually, pretty pretty early into the run, <laughs> I'd forgotten how early this was. We're introduced mm-hmm. to the Angel uh, Zariel, who has decided to you know live on Earth and and you know take on you know, flesh and and uh, he's this winged character and and uh, Aquaman even mistakes him for Hawkman at one point, <laughs> yeah. right? And I was just thinking about how in this run, really throughout, and we, we were talking off mic about how you can really look at Kyle Rayner, right, as as kind of a through line here, a point of view character, and someone who really has an arc over the course of these 40 issues. And I look at this run and I'm like, man, you know, Morrison was really moving the larger mythology forward, right? Allowing these these newer characters, those who had assumed the mantle uh, of the of their predecessors, you know, fairly recently, allowing them to grow and shine and have their moments. And again, a character like Zario, like he's not the new Hawkman, but he's a winged character, right, in the DC universe, kind of filling that filling that role, but in a in a very different capacity. And I just look at it and I'm like, that was such a great way, I think, to 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 honor what came before, right? It's their, you know, it's always sort of always in the shadow of what of those who who had come before them. But, but moving it forward as well. And I mean, as a kid, in fairness, I didn't have the attachment to Hal Jordan. I didn't have the attachment to Barry Allen. Maybe I would have felt differently. I'm sure I would have felt differently if I did. But yeah. as a kid, for me, it's like, man, I'm I'm really captivated by these characters and their journeys trying to forge their own path. And, you know, in the years after this run, we would get the return of Hal Jordan. We would get the return of Hawkman. We get the return of Barry Allen. And, and I liked a lot of those stories. I don't even necessarily begrudge DC for doing that, but... I don't know. I, I I look at this run in particular, this era, and I feel like they're. I don't know. I feel like, and I and I apologize for being so long winded about this, but I just feel like, you know, for anyone who's like, it was inevitable that those other characters would come back. I'm like, I don't know. Look at this run. Look at this era, because I feel like this is something that had DC really committed to this, could have continued. I mean, what? How do you feel? Yeah, and I think that, you know, the characters do find their ways to shine individually. What I think is, you know, because even Wally was a major part of, you know, recent issues in comics and things along those lines. And, you know, Kyle is like the White Ranger, basically, of the DC universe. You know, he's got all of the powers of all of the Lanterns, as far as the last I read. But, you know, what I think is a tragedy is I feel like Connor is missing. Like, I feel like he's completely missing from comics. I, I haven't seen him in anything recently, at least to my knowledge. Once again, I have, I'm not all the way caught up yet, but I genuinely loved Connor. I think there was something cool about like this character who was, you know, very meditative. And like, I, I remember reading his, you know, entire Green Arrow run. And I was, I remember being like, oh, so now we're not, we're switching away from him and it's going back to the old guy. Like, I remember being so disappointed by that. And I think that's still something that I like feel about it. But, you know, Oliver Queen is Oliver Queen. He's one of the most major, uh, did, did Connor even pop up an arrow? Yeah, they did a version of Connor Hawk when they did some, uh, some, some future visits to the future. It wasn't, uh wasn't particularly strong was my memory of it. Yeah. But like Connor's great. You have that moment where he's like looking around the city in destruction and he's like embodying Ollie and you see like the older guys being like, oh, he's definitely his father's son. <laughs> like 
there's great moments with him and it's just a tragedy that that character is missing i feel yeah i i'm not positive i feel like they've done something with him recently but i i haven't kept up kept up with it so i'm not positive audience you know please let us know but even if even if he's getting some play right it's definitely not to the extent that uh, you know of what we saw during this period of time and yeah. look you know here here we are you know in our mid-30s like this this was a very formative time for for you and i as we were reading yeah. and these were the versions of the character that we first really met and connected with so we feel a certain way about that and i can certainly appreciate how you know, mutual friend Rich Roney, who's been on the show before, like who grew up with Barry Allen and Hal Jordan, like would you know feel differently. Although he he was a fan of the younger characters too, so he's not, maybe not even the best example. But that experience is such a big part of all of this, and I can appreciate that. But I guess I just I love the way Morrison handled these characters, and yeah. I mean Connor Hawk in particular, because Connor's not not a member of the team for very long here. Right. No. It's sort of that he's coming to the watchtower for his tryout during that key two parter. And he just gets like launched into having to rescue the, <laughs> the rest of the team. Uh, and then, of course, we see the future version of him uh, and the present day version in Rock of Ages. And then he's, he kind of steps away. So it's not like you get a ton of Connor, but but you, but you get enough. And it, it really, you know, when he's wandering around the watchtower, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Right. The the big seven or however many of them were in play at the moment, you know, under the thrall of the key trapped in this, uh, you know, this uh, the, the, this fantasy world. Uh, and, you know, he has to rely on his dad's trick arrows from the JLA trophy room. <laughs> and in the end, of course, inevitably, it's the boxing glove arrow that saves the day as the key is going on and on about how he's amassed all the power he needs to to access this other dimension or whatever the whatever the case was. And all of a sudden you just see that boxing love arrow just clock him. It's great. It's such yeah, a it's such I love a great it moment. So much. And I love when it before he's like, I don't even know if I can fire this thing. <laughs> like Yeah. No, I know. It's so good. Well that's the I know that's the funny thing. I've never I've never tried my hand at archery, but I would imagine just sort of like the physics of it. I yeah, I don't know how that would <laughs> that would really work because it's got to be weighted it can't just be like an empty boxing glove it's got to have that like weight to it so (laughs) acme comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in greensboro north carolina for people of all ages and walks of life now in its 40th year this multiple time eisner award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back issue selection as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC movie rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. 
That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Thank you. And, you know, we mentioned Kyle and you mentioned Daniel Sandman, right, who has a a role in that two-parter with uh, Starro. It's kind of a new take on Starro the Conqueror where the, the, the... the whole country is placed in this slumber and, and Starro's taking over through their dreams and, and all that. And Sandman has to help them. But there's this great moment between Kyle and Daniel where Daniel's like, you'll surpass him. You know, the one who came mm-hmm. before and Kyle's like, well, how? Like everyone's always talking about how, how great he was. Daniel's like, you'll surpass him because you know, the one thing he could never learn fear. Yeah. Ah, oh, I get chills as I'm saying it. Like <laughs> it's, it's so good. So it's so good. good. <laughs> it's so good. And another legacy character too. So having this legacy character that isn't Morpheus, but is, you know, it's, it's a little amorphous there, but being able to say that to another legacy character is also really cool. For sure. And I, you know, I think Kyle, like we said, I think Kyle has a great, it, it's funny when we talk about arcs. I mean, I think that when you're dealing with a team book, right. And virtually all the characters have their own solo titles or multiple titles in the case of Batman or Superman, Right, most of the main development is going to happen over there in their own titles. Yeah. But I do think with Kyle in particular, you know, when you go from him at the very beginning of this, where he's just so out of sorts and sort of wide-eyed and, and intimidated at the prospect of working with these legends, these icons, these living myths, to go from that to to the moments that we see throughout the story and culminating in that World War Three storyline where uh, you know, Mageddon has essentially messed with his uh, his ability to work the ring. And he just has this, you know, this moment by himself, right? Where he's just like, come on, like, get it together. And he's able to do it. He's able to muster the willpower he needs. And, you know, he walks outside and he encounters Wally. And Wally's like, you're, you're the Green Lantern, man. Like, you just, you look like Green Lantern. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it, it's great. It's, it's so good. And, and but, I know Kyle's continued in all of that, but I, I loved his role here. But and leading up to that moment too, when like Guy is there and he's like questioning him and like, but he doesn't. His ring's not even working, and he's like, "Listen, you want the JLA? Look to the skies, because that's me." <laughs> and like, it's so good. Like when I read that, I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." Anytime Guy Gardner is put in his place, it's always a good, <laughs> always a good time. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what I had forgotten? I, I not not that they're at each other's throats or anything, but there was more tension between Kyle and Wally than I remember. Oh yeah. Right from the beginning, I feel like Kyle is almost like this like green like production assistant type at first. He's he's easily distracted. He's not sure what he's doing. He's like almost asking like too many questions. Like, no, just do the thing. Like you're the Green Lantern. Do a Green Lantern thing. And that's kind of how everybody treats him at first. But then you also see this moment where like Superman's able to be vulnerable around Wally and Kyle. And Superman like confesses his doubts to them. And I think that's like incredibly helpful for them as well. Absolutely. I, I think it's it's a moment between Superman and Flash, right? Uh, during yeah. that, uh, the Zariel Asmodel uh, two-parter where, you know, he expresses to Wally sort of doubts, concerns about living up to this myth that everybody, you know, sort of, you know, projecting onto him. And then later in the story, <laughs> as Wally <laughs> says, like, he's literally wrestling an angel. He's like, this is the guy yeah. who was worried about living up to his own myth. It's great. It's so good. It's it's so much fun. The what do you feel about the Hyper Clan? So if we're going back to like the beginning of all of this, do you think that they are made intentionally forgettable or like 
how do you feel about the hyper clan characters themselves? They kind of embody almost like these nineties, like Rob Liefeld type characters that like came and went. And so I feel like it really is pitting the justice league against these like nineties types. Yes, I agree with that. I think it's more like, like you said, more pitting them against an idea or an ideal rather than specific characters that were meant to really remember, so to speak. Mm hmm. And the thing that I kept thinking about was the authority. And now I know that we're still a couple of years away from the authority, right? Because I was 98, 99. Like it was yep. after this, right? As far as I know, I just started reading it. So I've, I had never read the authority prior to maybe two weeks ago. <laughs> it's I still have not read it yet. But now that they're one of the building blocks of the James Gunn cinematic universe, I will have to give yep. it a try. Uh, and of course, I mean, I've heard you know great things about it over all these years. But uh, I, I did check. It was after... It was after this JLA run, but not long after. And I, I do kind of wonder, I mean, I guess to your point there, you know, we were seeing kind of other versions of this, you know, the extreme, the grim and gritty, you know, uh, maybe more proactive, more lethal heroes during this time. But, but as I yeah. was reading this, I just, I couldn't help but think like, oh, like, was this in any way, any way, shape or form kind of an inspiration for what we would get in the authority? I mean, I have no idea, but that was definitely what I, what came to mind when I was reading this. Yeah, no, it has all of the vibes of those you know, like the boys characters and things along those lines of, um, oh, I'm trying to think of what came before, like, like Rob Liefeld's like X-Force and like a lot of those image comics, like characters and even Wildstorm, I think a little bit kind of fits into that mold of, even though, you know, DC and Wildstorm are connected, but the hyper clan just shows up as these, you know, they execute the villains and like jokers in hiding and things. It's, it's wild, but at the same time, I feel like they're forgettable themselves. Like, and their names are kind of terrible as well. <laughs> they are. It's a great setup though. And I wonder, I mean, I'm sure Morrison, whether, whether they plan to do something themselves or we're setting it up for subsequent writers, you know, in, in the culmination of all this. So, of course, you know, again, for anyone who needs a refresher, right, we have this new super group, the Hyper Clan, who come and they set themselves up as Earth's new guardians, but far more proactive, right? They, uh, you know, they convert the desert into this, you know, lush farmland. Of course, later it's, you know, kind of all a facade and it falls apart. But, you know, they're doing that. They're they're executing criminals. Like, they're just more, far more proactive than any Justice League has been. And, uh, you know, very quickly seem to be turning public opinion against the Justice League. Uh, it turns out that there are white Martians and it's a great reveal and, and the, the, there are a lot of great moments kind of leading up to this. But in the end, we find out that the way that they're dealt with is uh, they are, I mean, essentially brainwashed and and made to pose and live as humans. And yeah. that will come Which up- Which is dark. That's dark. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Like- I, it's uh and and if my memory serves and we'll actually get to this a little bit down the line in Mark Wade's run on JLA which followed Morrison's um he followed up on all of this and and actually even in one of those issues one of those fill-in issues during this period that we skipped there's business with a white martian posing as Bruce Wayne during a no man's land thing so th this was followed up on with the white martians but but you know we'll talk about that more down the line but it is a great setup. Like the idea that these, you know, it's almost like a ticking time bomb out there. It's like, you know, especially with their, their telepathic mental abilities, it's like, well, this probably won't hold forever, but yes, the ethics of this 
are pretty questionable. And that's not really yeah. <laughs> really delved into here. It's just kind of like that's what's <laughs> done with them. Well, isn't also the ship that Prometheus finds, isn't it a white Martian ship in Tibet? Because it's like mentioned in passing that like this ship that he comes into contact with is also the White Martian. So it's like everything really does kind of come together in the ending right from this like very beginning point. Like it all seems, you know, pretty meticulously planned out. That was one of the other big things, because, again, all this culminates in that World War Three arc, Morrison's final story, where uh, they are facing the, 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 the primordial annihilator, uh, you know, of, of the. The, the prior universe, the Mageddon. And, you know, there, there are, you know, hints and mentions of this from very early on. In fact, we didn't, we didn't read this for this episode, but before JLA number one, Mark Wade wrote a three issue miniseries called uh, JLA Midsummer's Nightmare. Oh, I remember that. And in that there was a character who was a uh, warning of, of a coming uh, war, war bringer and wanted to convert the human populace into superheroes and the league stops him. I mean, ironically, that's how they'll win the day in the World War Three storyline. But yeah. so that this is, and and uh, they even mention that in the final in World War Three, one of the characters makes mention to that encounter from way back. So I mean, this was something like you you know reading this, it's like man, there the pieces were really all in place. And I, again, other big picture take, it just this feels like a run, like really like a run in a way that not everything always does. Like sometimes whatever, someone lose, you know, a writer loses interest or they're not able to continue and bring their stories to fruition, whatever the case might be, or, or the quote unquote run just consists of maybe, you know, more loosely connected arcs, but whatever the case may be. But this, I feel like these, you know, one through 41, it's like, there's really, you know, you read this thing all the way through and you really get a complete story that clearly had a lot of intention and thought behind it throughout. Well, I think Morrison in general, their work they tend to really touch on the same themes because, you know, I follow like their like online blog thing, uh, the Xanadoom, and they sent out an article that was basically talking about the ultra war is coming. And so it, like just reading World War Three, uh, well, um, World War Three, like at the end of this and seeing like, oh, this is what he means by ultra war is that everything gets heightened up to this level where everyone is at war with one another. And... To, to always go back to these things. I mean, everything that happens in his future for J the Justice League pretty much happens in Final Crisis. Like, and we talked about that. So they, uh, they, they're really concise and like driven to get their themes across. Cause even their thesis on like how comic books and where like the, where the fifth world basically looking in on the two dimensional world of the comic books, you know, that's all in this run as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I, you know, one of the things that that was so cool about this is that whether it's sort of the, the South American God of darkness that Aztec was, was trained to fight or this again, uh, annihilator of the old world that uh, Big Barda and Orion are sent to Earth to to guard against, or this evil that Zariel and the the heavenly hosts are aware of. Right, it takes different forms and it's interpreted differently. Right, but it's all the same evil that they must yeah. fight, just taking different forms. And so, kind of regardless of what your perspective is, your belief system, <laughs> like where you're coming from, it, it it sort of fits into each of those. I really like that. I mean, it's a very like occult idea, the God at the end of the universe that's eating it 
you know? <laughs> I feel like we had this exact conversation when we talked about <laughs> <Yeah>. Final Crisis. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's it's this, it's all, it's, I mean, it's out of the Bhagavad Gita. Like, so if you read like that, you know, religious text, you'll see that, you know, God in that reveals themselves as this world eater that's coming no matter what. It'll always be there, but it always starts anew afterwards. So it's just that, you know, it, if you know that, it makes sense for a lot of Morrison's work because they very much pull from the Gita when it comes to their larger mythological ideas because the Hindu texts are massive. They are these superhero battles. You know, in Hindi films, in like Bollywood films, they're able to make a connected universe with their deities that matches the Marvel universe. If you go look at some of these trailers for these um, these Bollywood films, they're just as good as like an Avengers movie, but it's like they're gods. <laughs> it's really cool. Kind of on this note of Morrison and Morrison's big ideas and everything, I, you know, I've always said, and I, I would still say this, even though I think I've I've come to understand and wrap my head around uh, other Morrison works in a way that I didn't before. But even still, I, I would I would still hold this up as one of Morrison's most digestible superhero works or just comic book works in general. So I was curious if you agree with that. And then also, you know, your, your thoughts on Howard Porter as artist on here, because that's one of the other things that I found is that, uh, you know, you do need the right artist with Morrison to really Mm -hmm. sort of be able to translate a lot of these ideas. So how how did you feel about uh, the art here? Um, I genuinely like Porter's work. I, I think it's, very kind of pulpy, some of the way the figures move, and very dramatic. Like they have, they're always making very big faces to convey emotion. But it's also every issue is these characters' worst day. Like there's not like a like chill moment. The only like laid back moment I can think of is the coffee shop scene with Ollie and Kyle. I mean Ollie uh, with Connor and Kyle. That's like the only scene I can think of that's like very like you know character development-y, dialogue-heavy between two people with not a lot of action. Outside of that, every moment is like crisis to the point where there he's like stacking crisis on top of crisis on top of crisis. And it's kind of like, well, when are we going to get a break here? <laughs> it is. I think, as you said earlier, it, it is pretty relentless. You, It's funny. I think in some of those fill-in issues that we skipped over, I think you get a little bit more of the you know, I, my memory of it is I think maybe you get a little bit more of those breather moments, but yeah, certainly in the Morrison written issues, it's just we're going from from big story to big story, and but I think that you know that pace, it just it you know it it works, it works, and and I think Porter was able to deliver on like the massive scale of these things. Like I was, nothing was ever unclear with Porter's artwork. You know, I think the character work is a little like cartoony almost, which I think works for kids. You know, it's not this heavy, realistic stuff. It you 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 feel like you're reading a comic book. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've always felt it's funny because I was you know before we sat down to do this, I was just searching on Twitter. You know, just curious like what you know what's been said about this run recently, especially kind of in in my circles and stuff. And you know, one of the things that I, I saw someone ask, "Well, was Howard Porter the right artist?" And it seemed like most of the people you know were in agreement that he was, and and I, and I certainly am. And it's you know, to me, his rendition of these characters and these stories is so indelible when I think of this run. I mean, it's, you know, so much imagery that it, you know, just immediately comes to mind. And yeah, I think he really did a great job of, 
of presenting a lot of these big, wild, crazy ideas in a way that was clean and clear and palatable. And yes, to your points, like you're, you still feel like you're in superhero comic mode, but there's something else going on here. And kind of on that note, I know, you know, we don't have to put one thing down to lift something else up. At the same yeah. time, the context of all of this, as the audience knows, right, I've been rereading the Superman titles from this same period. And, you know, I've been talking about the good and the bad with as we've been going through it. Overall, I've been enjoying them, and I always appreciate the work that that those creative teams on those Triangle Era books were doing and weaving together a weekly story. And even the worst of those stories was still solid and entertaining and enjoyable. At the same time, I mean, I, I, I you have to recognize what Morrison was doing here, and it's just they're playing on a different level, right? And that's the thing is, and I think that's I think I think that's why I'm not saying anything you know revolutionary here, but I think that's that's also why this run you know, has withstood the test of time and, and, you know, stood out at the time as well. It's just that I think what they were doing was, was different than what we were seeing. Um, even, even among the stronger, you know, superhero books at the time, like this just felt elevated. Well, you have with Morrison's career and I'm sure I'm probably going to get something incorrect, but they had done Arkham Asylum. They had done Animal Man. They had done Doom Patrol and they were kind of in the midst of the Invisibles. But you can tell that Morrison's kind of getting out their own um, doubts and fears through Kyle and Wally. That they were able to kind of use those two characters to like, oh, I guess we're in the big leagues now. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, they may be one of the, the most prolific comic book writers now, but to be handed the Justice League when you're, you know, a kid from Scotland that Superman was the one who like made you stop fearing the bomb in the first place. <laughs> To now be able to handle not only just Superman, but the entire Justice League, and to have the responsibility of developing these legacy characters further, and to be laying out the groundwork for everything in the DC Universe up to Final Crisis. <laughs> it's no. a big ask, and you can feel, like I, I feel like when I was reading it, I can feel like their inexperience coming into terms and like, they're also on the same journey as Kyle in a sense. <laughs> oh, that's a cool way to look at that. And yeah, I, there probably is something to that. And, you know, the, the other thing too, is that, you know, props to Morrison and, and Porter, but, you know, for, for giving us this version of the justice league, right? I mean, I, I don't purport to be an expert on the history of the Justice League, but obviously I know we've had different permutations in, in membership. I know we definitely had stretches pre-crisis where Superman and Batman, like you had the heavier hitters on the team. And I think there was typically more of a mix where you had some of the heavy hitters and then some of the, you know, second or third tier characters, right? So you had a little bit more of a balance. And then, yeah. of course, post-crisis you know, the, the Keith Giffen, J.M. DiMatteis, the Bwahaha era and the death of Superman period, like all that stuff that we've, we've been talking about, you know, you, you, as much as Superman, I know was part of it for, for a time, but you know, it wasn't this, it wasn't the big seven. And that's, that's what Morrison gave us. And it's like, it would have been, I'm sure it would have been an easier lift, right. To maybe not have all seven or to, or to, you know, or whatever the case may be, but this just, you know, just kind of escalated everything and the stakes felt higher. I mean, and, and it also felt perfectly fitting as well in its own way. Right. It's like, if you're going to have yeah. an assembling of, 
of superheroes in the DC universe to handle the biggest threats, well, I mean, it stands to reason it would be your your heaviest hitting characters. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, and they also embody all of the, you know, the major religions in this, too. He's able to get all of these religions to kind of communicate with each other and, like, find common ground against, like, this existential threat of entropy. You know? Yeah, for sure. And... I, another, I got to give props too, because as much as I've read a ton of Batman, a ton, obviously a ton of Superman, uh, I've read my fair share of Wonder Woman and Flash and Green Lantern. Uh, you know, Martian Manhunter hasn't had a ton of play in terms of a solo series. I know there was one, uh, you know, kind of around this time. I only ever dabbled in it. And I've read sh- shockingly little Aquaman. I mean, I've really mostly just read that Jeff Johns, you know, New 52 run. So yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, and especially at this time, this book's take on Manhunter and Aquaman in particular were very formative. And and I feel like the book treats both of them very well. But Aquaman in particular, the character who who is always easy to sort of dismiss or reduce to a, to a joke, man, this series gives him so many badass moments. Yeah. It's like, I mean, there's so many to choose from, but like when... Uh, you know, they have their expanded membership and they're inviting the press to the moon and Prometheus attacks and there's the, the fire in the greenhouse that's producing their oxygen uh, and they need the the water from Aquaman's tank and they realize that he's manually turning. Yeah. Turning that thing. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's great. And there's so many moments like that that really- And then he takes on that massive like whale to creature and like the future. And I also, I wish there was more of this because I loved it so much. Just the sarcastic dolphins in early on with like the hyper clan. I forget what they say exactly. Oh, ugly thing anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I just I, I I love that the animals like talked back to him in that moment, and I would just love more of that. <laughs> like I know it's silly, but I just think it's I think it was just fascinating that they just, you know, you could hear their opinions about things and that they were working with him as like an equal almost. Yeah, it was, I mean, there's there's so many great moments. And, you know, while we're talking about kind of, you know, versions of the JLA that came before, you know, in thinking about the runs that would come later. And I, I mean, I feel like the Mark Wade run and then the Joe Kelly run, I, I, I'd have to, I, again, I will be going back to those fairly soon. But my memory of them is that they, you know, felt of a piece with what had come before. You know, they were, mm-hmm. you know, as they kind of were passing the baton to each other. But in in runs to follow, I, I am actually I'm a I'm a big fan of Brad Meltzer, and I enjoyed his work on <clears throat> the post Infinite Crisis Justice League of America series that he wrote the first year of the Tornadoes Path and all that. But oh yeah, it's great stuff. But you know, here's an instance where someone clearly had a ton of love for the Bronze Age, you know, Justice League of America, and then was sort of giving us an updated spin on that. More recently, Scott Snyder had a long run on Justice League. Uh, I have not read it yet. I will be. But from what I know of it, uh, it seems that Snyder's, uh, you know, affinity for the Super Friends cartoon was kind of on full display there with the Legion of Doom yeah. and all that. I don't say this as a knock, right? It's 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 totally understandable and it's cool, right? You have the opportunity to write these characters. Of course, you're going to kind of call back to, you know, what you love most about them, right? And, and bring them. But at the same time, there is this part of me that's like, well, you know, are we... Is it, is it like a one step forward, two step back, two steps back sort of thing? And I look at what Morrison was doing and it just, it just, and I know I said this before, but kind of in a, in a different vein, it just felt like forward movement in a way that 
I mean, I don't know. An audience, tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. You're like, have we had a run since that felt as forward moving, forward thinking as this? Or is it more, again, updated spins on familiar iterations? Well, I mean, I you can also say that this run was a callback to a lot of things. So the DC universe is constantly in this state of death and rebirth and death and rebirth, and they change the characters and everything happens. <clears throat> you could technically tell all the same stories over and over again from every death and every rebirth. You know, you have the key is basically the I'm blanking on the plant, but uh, you were talking about it in one of the Superman episodes that they put on the characters that takes their the Black Mercy. And like they don't tell you what the synthesized the synthesized, you know, virus that he's injecting is, but it could just be like a like an LSD form of Black Mercy that now has put all of these characters into that state. You know, you're you're retelling these like major Justice League moments. You know, you have the key who's now updated. You have um, Starro, the the Starro. You have the Justice League JSA combination. You're you're doing all like the pop hits, but just they're done so well and in such a way that you know covers them up as you know these like popular hits. It's like a whole new version. Uh, yeah, I guess that's no because I mean you're you're right. Uh, you know. Uh... Yeah, on the one hand, maybe I'm giving, you know, Morrison too much credit because, yeah, there was, you know, you're, I mean, you're not wrong, but I don't know. Yeah, it still just had that feel of of being fresh and new and different in a way that, but, you know, look, here's the other thing, too, that I very much recognize. It was new to me at the time. Yeah. Right? So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. So, But uh, these stories are new to somebody every time, yeah. you know, and the people who have came before us they may have seen these stories already and or maybe they hadn't but to i think what was the most new was having this team that was half original half legacy characters i don't think that had ever existed before you know i mean you had the run that was all legacy characters with um the you know the prior the justice league international lineup pretty much but prior to that, it's kind of always been the super friends, you yeah. know? So having these legacy characters really is what gave it that. And I think that's why legacy characters are important because, you know, hearing all the stuff that you're talking about with, you know, Jonathan Kent and Superman, like that's exciting to me. <laughs> yes. Like that. Yeah, no, that has been so refreshing to to read all of that. And yeah, again, I mean, I don't want to harp on this, but with Kyle, with Wally, with Connor, you know, it wasn't as if, oh, the entire DC Universe's slate was wiped clean and we had, you know, the legacy characters. It was, you had this mix, right? And the JLA yeah. title is a perfect example of of sort of all of that coming together. And uh, again, in, in, in all of those cases, they those characters, their storylines, their individual series were informed by what had come before. So I really, as I was reading as a kid, and and even though my frame of reference was was more limited, I always had the sense of of what had come before. And so again, I just think it was kind of a nice way to to go about it. I want to bring in one of our, our patron questions. So, and this ties us back to Superman and, and the electric saga, and then we'll, we can sort of continue to make our way through the the big stories here. So Brian says, do you think it was the right choice to pivot into using electric Superman in the run 
or would you have preferred the classic look? When you reread the issues, did you look to see or pick up on points where the story was written for Superman, but we ended up with Electric Superman? I always felt the scene where Superman is pushing the moon was originally intended to be a show of super strength, not magnetic style, especially when the League looks on in awe. So, I mean, a couple of things to unpack there. I mean, as far as was whether it was the right choice to use Electric Superman in the run, I say yes. I mean, as we said before, I think we get some of the best uses of Electric Superman <laughs> in this run, so I would hate to yeah. lose those. And also, like I was saying before, it... And I, and I think this can, uh, you know, can be a fool's errand if, if you do it too much, right? Trying to reflect what's going on in the ongoing titles. Like you could drive yourself crazy, you know, as the writer of JLA, if you're like constantly trying to make sure that you're, you're lining up with every single thing. But I think when you're talking about with Superman, for example, a major change in his status quo in his costume and in his power set, which lasted a full year, um, you know, like a full calendar year, I think, to ignore it completely would probably, you know, might have made JLA feel like it wasn't as central to the DCU as we've been talking about, right? It might have been easier to kind of overlook it. What do you think? I was honestly disappointed when I saw him back as normal. I was like, ah, man, he's back. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I love Superman and I, you know, I love what Morrison's able to do with Superman, but Something about Electric Superman in this run, like, he just kind of fits color scheme-wise. His outfit is so, like, I think the outfit's really cool. I know a lot of people disagree, but I genuinely think that outfit is, like, a cool take on this character that fits with this kind of cool legacy run. Like, he doesn't have to, Superman isn't trying to fit in with these young characters. He's like, I'm also, hey guys, I'm also kind of trying to figure this stuff out, too. And so you have this like legend with these newbies that this legend is also in the same spot that they are. So it makes them all feel like a cohesive team, you know, and when he comes back later on, uh, it's, you know, it's Superman again (laughs) and it, it doesn't feel as exciting to me when I saw, you know, the red and blue versus that, you know, blue and white and like to know what, how he was going to have to handle things differently. Because at one point, I'd think that he had to wear like a mask in space, but then they they dropped that. So I don't know like if something was developed in Superman over that. But you notice things like that where you're like, oh, wait, wait. So how – because I feel like during this time period, you're very much always on like edge of like how do his powers work? Like what is – who is he? And I know that that's sometimes annoying for people. But I genuinely loved like him polarizing the moon and being able to like levitate it back. I thought that was so cool. And the amount of times he's like, oh, they're light energy. I made out of energy absorbed. Like Exactly. And, you know, the uh, one other big moment that comes to mind, you know, we, we talked about him, you know, wrestling the angel, uh, polarizing and moving the moon, uh, absorbing the hard light hologram Superman from the revenge squad. Uh, and just how sort of matter of fact he is about it. He's like, well, they're light. <laughs> That's a form of energy. I absorb energy. Boom. <laughs> and then even when when Superman and, and Jean are on the decoy uh, Injustice Gang satellite and it blows up. Yeah. And he absorbs all of the energy except the light energy. So it still has the effect of the explosion, right? And yeah. Luther thinks that they're dead, but of course they're not. So I'm definitely glad that Morrison used electric Superman. And- I agree with you, man. It was weird. Like, as I was reading this, 
I, I get what you're saying. I, when classic red and blue Superman showed back up, I was like, okay, but there was something really cool. I agree. I think this, again, this, the, the living myth, big seven version of the JLA, like having electric Superman there visually. And again, in terms of characterization and what he was doing, it just fit. It, it just yeah. worked really well. I'll also say, and this kind of ties back to a couple of episodes ago, I've gone on about how as we got deeper into the triangle era electric Superman storyline in the regular Superman books, it grew tedious for me how many times Superman was explaining to himself via thought bubbles, but essentially explaining to the audience like what he was doing with his new powers. Yeah. And I understand it's like, you know, they want to make sure the audience understands. And also so much of why they did this story was, oh, we want to challenge him in a new way. Now he's going to have to figure out new ways of doing things. And there were a few examples in those regular super titles where I felt, oh, okay. Like that was, that was really a cool set piece where you got to see the new powers. But more often than not, it was just like, oh my God, it was just like, we were constantly being told <laughs> what he was doing. What was awesome here was that Again, I feel like he was just more matter of fact about it. And maybe because he's surround, he's part of an ensemble here, he can have other people, to Brian's point, react in awe and explain what he's doing. Yeah. As opposed to Superman having to think what he's, you know what I mean? Like it has a much, much more, uh, you know, a, a effective uh, impact for me in that in that regard. I downloaded this all really quickly, so I'm forgetting like where exactly this happens. But when they turn him into FM energy and just launch him into space at one point, and then he's like, oh, yeah, I bounced off a satellite off of Jupiter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it it, it kind of gives an excuse for to have that old like comic booky like the heroes describing every action. And he's the only one that's doing it. It's just very funny. It's very that that element of the explanation is very old style Silver Age kind of comic books. No, absolutely. And, you know, to Brian's other question about whether certain things were intended for classic Superman and then they had to quickly kind of shoehorn electric Superman in. I really couldn't say. I mean, I don't think that anyone in, internally at DC was blindsided by electric Superman. If this was something mm -hmm. they were building towards. So I would imagine that Morrison had had enough heads up in order to be able to account for this. I could be totally wrong, but you know, Morrison has Superman move the moon early. I mean, that's issue seven, six or seven. I mean, it's very yeah, early it's... on. And while yes, maybe you could foresee a scenario where it had been classic red and blue Superman pushing the moon. I don't know. I really feel like this was more designed for electric Superman. I, like, and I don't know that it would have necessarily had the same impact otherwise. I didn't notice anything. I didn't notice anything that was like meant to be, you know, regular Superman that ended up being electric. I don't, I think it all flowed kind of seamlessly. You know, he shows up and he explains like, well, this is who I am. <laughs> what was it? The haircut. That's the, that's the reveal when Kyle's like, all I did was tell him to get a haircut. I didn't know. I think he would change everything this much. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at the JLA secret files and origins. Number one. Yeah. So there's a short story in there where he insists on trying out for the league again because he has the new powers. Yes. <laughs> Do you remember the button to that? Because it's a it's a great payoff with Batman. Oh, no, I missed it. 
with Batman where they're, uh, the league is up. Oh yes. Yeah. And he's like, no, it's Superman. Don't, why are you bothering me with this? <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it was great. No, the, the, the handling of electric Superman, I think was, was really strong. And yeah, I think even for people who really don't like this chapter in Superman's history, this was a, a bright spot. And I really think it does work for all the reasons that, you know, that we've been talking about here. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was really a big fan of that. So now I guess circling back to the specific arcs, uh, we just passed the hour mark. So it's like, let's arc number one, hyperclan. I mean, we're, yeah. we're, <laughs> I mean, you already hit on. Is there anything uh, else uh, specifically with that first arc that, uh, that you wanted to talk about? Um, I don't think that there's anything major. I thought it was cool that you had like this, you know, uh, the, the faux altruism, the anti-propaganda works every time, you know, the hate the JLA and golden old oldies radio station was something that I thought was like interesting that they were so quickly like, all right, we got to get our propaganda running to like get these people to turn against the JLA. And like, you know, I think Aquaman and Wonder Woman are always great to have moments together. And they had this really great, like Arthur stop posturing, like just, you know, it's me. And, you know, the the Flower of Wrath, whatever that was, was terrifying. <laughs> that, like, imperial death machine that they built with all of, like, the needles and screens. And I also felt like Batman had to work a little to earn his place in this. You had to kind of, you know, Batman had his time to shine to, like, why is Batman here in the Justice League with all these heavy hitters? And he had those moments during this Hyper Clan run to kind of prove that. Yeah, I mean, he's the one who figures out that they're white Martians, they're vulnerable to flame, right? When the bat plane goes down, like they don't want to go investigate because they don't want to get near the flames and he starts to piece it together and they, you know, they discount him, right? Because he's the only one without powers and then he's the one yeah. who's able to infiltrate and and overtake them and he leaves the note, right, on one of them, like, I know, I know who you are. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like, I mean, you you would know this better than me, but I feel like one of the things that's that's said about this run, I think more in the realm of a criticism is this sort of this idea of the, the, the bat God, like how Morrison builds up Batman so much and, and has him do all of these things, you know, maybe to your point of, you know, kind of, you know, Batman proving himself. I, in rereading this, and I might've totally misinterpreted that, that whole argument, but that's kind of, I don't know, kind of the sense that I've gotten. Have you come across that or no? No, I don't think that um, Batman does anything to, crazy in this one it's not like he's falling from you know orbit and has to survive like in more <laughs> recent things i've heard about but like i think that everything is kind of within a mortal's realm of capability at like a heightened stage um <clears throat> I, i've heard morrison talk about how batman is kind of representative of um the underworld deities like a hades in a sense like he um is kind of this caretaker of the lost souls with Arkham Asylum and like, you know, Gotham city is like his realm that like dark realm that people don't want to go to of like lost souls. And so that's kind of why he fits into this godlike thing. I would say is because he's kind of embodying this like outsider, you know, um, caretaker of mortal souls. <laughs> No, fair. You know, well said. And I, I mean, I guess my feeling in, in rereading this whole run was, I feel like in in most of these stories, like we talked about how how big and epic and high stakes 
you know, how, how high the stakes are and everything. And I feel like in, in almost all of these stories, you know, the league is always kind of scattered and against the ropes, but they always have, you know, uh, you know, uh, an ace up their sleeve. Like there's always some plan that they've formulated some, something that they've worked out. Uh, and, and sometimes it's Batman, but other times it's not. I mean, Plastic Man and Steel have some great bits, especially yeah. in World War Three, <laughs> where they, they uh, are able to, uh, you know, overtake Queen Bee and all that. So, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know that it's, it's necessarily limited to Batman. So, yeah, I don't know. To whatever extent that's been an argument, it wasn't something that I that I was that took me out of it, I guess I should say, as, as I was reading this. I would feel the only criticism that I genuinely have on this book is kind of the lack of women in it and how like in every issue there always seems to be like one off comment about someone like a woman like oh check out her in that swimsuit like there's always seems to be like one of those lines throughout each of these but that would be genuinely the only criticism that i have of these books but that's you know that's of the time i guess (laughs) Yeah, in, in in fairness, and at least you know we do get the the roster expanded. You get Huntress, you get Barda in there. Yeah, um, and that that's a breath of fresh air because I I love Barda so much. And even though her, I didn't realize for me, I always thought that Orion and Barda were around so much more. And they even comment like, "Where are you?" <laughs> <laughs> I forget who says it to them, but like I think it might be Steel, and Steel's like, "Where are you guys?" Yeah. <laughs> No, I had that same thought too. It's like as they're dispatched to Earth, and then yeah, they only kind of pop in here and there. They're not as as regular a presence as as we would probably remember them being. There's this one off with uh, Tamara Woman, this android, uh, oh, so good, created by Tio Morrow and, uh, and and Ivo, and you know the the payoff to that I thought was terrific, where you know she is able to sort of break through her programming, like she was programmed so well, too well. Right, that she was able to gain this self awareness and again sort of overcome this this programming, develop a true moral code, and and it was Tio Morrow, right, who had created who had created her. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 exactly the plot of Ex Machina. <laughs> <laughs> it's like because you can see Morrow's excited that she's breaking the programming, you know, even though um, Ivo, which I I don't remember Ivo being a monster like that. Maybe it was a, something of that time period. Yeah, that but, I don't know. Um, but you know, you could see Tio Morrow's like so excited that she's like broke her programming. He's like, I did it. I created a soul. <laughs> and that, and that, that to me, what that was a payoff that, that just worked so well with this, right. That he, like, he was so like, that was his objective. Like he wanted to prove that he could do that. Like clearly, you know, they don't accomplish their, you know, their, uh, you know, super villain aims, but you know, he proved that he could do it. So I thought that was a nice payoff. And, you know, we, that, that issue is bookended with, um, you know, with uh, funerals, right, in this superhero cemetery, beginning with Metamorpho and then ending with Tomorrow Woman, and Superman's there for both. And I, I thought that was uh, that was a nice, nice one-off. Well, they have that uh, the caretaker basically saying, you know, you, that Superman killed death in a sense, like he killed the concept of dying. <laughs> There's, um, you know, what I feel like it's, I feel like it's Final Crisis where Jean is killed. And there's yeah. some sort of service for him. And in that, they say, like, we pray for a resurrection. Oh, that's cool. I feel like it's final. <laughs> I mean, I could be, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of stuff is swirling around. I could be wrong, but I, there's some story and I think it's final crisis, but it's like, that makes sense, right? In the DC universe that yeah. they probably wouldn't see death as being that permanent within the superhero community since we've seen so many people come back. So that, yeah, yeah that, that tracks. 
you know, then we get that two-parter that introduces uh, Zariel. I will say, I always love the character. I forgot how... I don't know what the right word is. Uh, I guess I always, in my head, remembered him being more, um, you know, more stoic or more Same. serious. And he's not. Like, he's pretty flip. <laughs> no. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't, it, I, I was just surprised. Like, I have totally misremembered his characterization. Same. I, I don't know why I did that. Because I remember him also being very stoic. And I remember him being one of my favorites. And this time around, I don't think he sat at the top of my like favorite list like I did when I was a kid. And I wonder like if Morrison put this in because of popularity from what was that Nick Cage movie, The City of Angels, or <laughs> oh. where the angel comes down and like takes on flesh because of love. Maybe did you ever read the the Zariel uh three issue miniseries that Mark Miller wrote? I did, yeah. but I don't remember it. Same. But maybe that's where I got that from? No, because I think that miniseries, that's on the app. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hit on that at some point. But uh, so after he's introduced, right, he mentioned, he turns down membership in the league initially because he's like, I've fallen in love. And so I think the miniseries, it's just a three-parter, is, follows that thread. Yeah. But I think the characterization is consistent. I will say what made me even more primed to enjoy the, the, the angels of it all is watching 15 years of Supernatural. Because yeah. what you learn in watching Supernatural is that angels are dicks. And <laughs> God, God, God is, at best, an absentee father. At best. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, actually can get quite worse. Uh, so in watching this, right, where the angels are, are, hunting, are hunting him and they follow him to earth and then they're destroying everything, I'm like, that makes sense. And I feel yeah. like as a kid, <laughs> like I've talked about how I'm not religious now. I was more so as a kid. Like I went through Catholic school, all through elementary school, high school. There was a period in my life where I was more into it. And so I probably did view this, not that I would have been like, this is how, this is sacrilege, but yeah. I probably did re did view it differently at that point in my life. Whereas now I'm like, yep, that totally tracks based on what I've learned from Sam and Dean Winchester. Yeah. Like this is exactly <laughs> how it would go. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why I liked Zoriel so much because he was like, no, I, I'm like, I, I believe in humanity. Whereas like all the other angels are like, uh, why do we have to deal with these things? <laughs> and just to skip to the end, but this is actually, you know, as we're kind of going through these arcs when there are connection points, like, you know, we can, we can jump around. Yeah. Uh, in that World War III storyline, he dies on the watchtower when uh, one of the, one of Luther's bombs goes off and he finds himself in heaven and he finds the heavenly hosts designing a new universe, right? They've yeah. already written off this one. It's like, Mageddon's coming, yep. that's it. We're going to create this new one. And he appeals to them. And it seems like his his words fall on deaf ears. And then, and then you get the, the few of them who are like, I'll go with you. I'll come to earth. Yeah, that Spartacus moment. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, as Michael Scott says, you know, Spartacus, classic whodunit. Still don't know who the real Spartacus is. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, it is this great moment and they really help turn the tide, right? As, as we're in this Mageddon arc and, and everyone is, is, is just, uh, antagonistic and violent and wars are breaking out and the angels really help, help calm everything and calm the world yeah. leaders, uh, and, and get everyone to sort of ease off. But it's a great, uh, it, that's a great payoff, I think, for him and, and to have that moment. Yeah, absolutely. I, and who, who says, I think it's maybe Barda who says the line, like, after all your world leaders are being held hostage at spear point by the angels. <laughs> oh, I like these people. <laughs> yeah. 
I think Barda and Zariel, they have a moment uh, at the end of One Million. It's a very brief moment where they sort of acknowledge to each other, like, hey, I know why you're here. And it's like, oh, yeah, I know why you're here. They, you know, they sort of acknowledge this larger threat that they both know is coming. Yeah. So. Uh, and like Zariel's this perfect, you know, biblical Christian foil to the pagan gods of the JLA. You know, he's, he's right there along with them and they can exist all in the same place and work together. How, what a concept. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very true. No, I, yeah, I, I do like this whole, I remember being very intrigued by this as a kid, Uh, again, especially at a time where I was more practicing my faith, Uh, sort of this notion that. Christianity or like existed within the context of, of the DC universe, right? That there was the presence and the, and the angels and, and all of that. It was, uh, it was interesting. I don't know that this character, I was looking him up on Wikipedia, Zoriel, like he's popped up here and there, like he'll pop up during big events and stuff, but I don't think anything's really been done with him in a substantive way in a, in a really long time. Not since day of judgment. That was really his big time to shine. Yeah. I feel like, um, but much like Connor, he's always in the background of big splash pages and that's kind of where he's been relegated and I'll be excited. I'll be like, Oh, look at Zario. And like someone remembered him, <laughs> but that's about it. Yeah. So we talked about that two parter with the key, uh, such a great spotlight for Connor Hawk. Was there anything else there before we launch into rock of ages? I, I just think that th- there was a moment with Kyle where he's always just proving at least to me, why he's so much better than Hal instead of just like, you know, airplanes and, you know, guns and things like that, where like Kyle's able to utilize the ring to like escape traps and to like use it as a way to develop, um, you know, things that actually work. You know, he's he traps himself in his own mind in the next arc and, you know, Rock of Ages. He like ends up like in like a poppy field and during his heroes, like mythic Dante's infernal walk into, you know, the hell realm basically. And he creates his own mind that he's trapped in for months. He says, you know, and something like that happens in Zariel's run. And I, I I didn't write down the specifics, but I was just like, you know, I just wrote down Kyle always showing how he's a much better character than Hal. (laughs) Not that I'm putting down Hal. I just, you know, I just genuinely feel that Kyle is like, a better green lantern <laughs> also hot take. And I know the Hal fans will, will not agree with this, but Hal's arc, right. Rebelling against the guardians when they won't let him rebuild coast city, his descent yep. into villainy, his ultimate yep. redemption and final crisis. And then his new yep. path as the specter. Yeah. That's a great arc. It's amazing. It's, it's like, that I without any of that I would be would have been so upset that he came back as Green Lantern without the whole Specter without the Day of Judgment with like that end piece where it's like him that they find in like the afterlife and he's like I don't know if I sh- if I'm I should I don't I don't forgive myself yet and then he gets offered the Specter amazing it's so amazing and what's I mean this is. this might be its own episode down the line but it's like what's what's crazy about this is it's not like oh. This all happened within one writer's run. Oh, so much of Hal's arc happened over these big events, right? Final night, zero yep. hour, final night, day of judgment. But you put it all together. And again, I think it's I think it's a great arc and it it makes sense. Anyway, 
uh, I'm a, I'm a Kyle fan. I, there's yes. how stuff that I've enjoyed and I get the appeal of how Jordan, especially for those who grew up with him, or even if you did not I get it, but yeah, Kyle, my heart is always with Kyle. My heart is always yep. with Kyle is, is I guess what it comes down to. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020. Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast Sam Lim. Sam just moved to the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics. So Rock of Ages, obviously we did a whole episode where we talked about that and Final Crisis, but yeah, I don't know. Is is there anything that stood out to you like differently this time? Is there anything you, you know, that, that, uh, that you wanted to talk about? I think it was around, you know, issue 10 was I wrote down like this is about the time I realized that it's relentless. Like, like that's I, I know I've said it multiple times this episode already, but like it is truly a relentless run. They like in this Rock of Ages coming off of like having fought angels and the key and all of these other things, they, you know, have the injustice gang and then stack on top of it you know, dark side and then stack on top of it, Mageddon. And it's like, <laughs> it's a huge centerpiece. I mean, like rock of ages is truly a brilliant run. I, I like, I, I think like what comes after it is almost like tame in comparison to anything that rock of ages, like no, it's almost like, you know, that Dexter season four, you can't live up to that again. Not that this it like ruins the rest of the run, but like it's just such a beautiful set piece. I'm with you. I, so you know what comes after this, which we'll talk about. We get the Prometheus two parter, the Sandman two parter, the Ultramarine Corps three parter, the mm-hmm. Crisis Times five four parter with the JSA, which that that that's a standout for me because I love I love yeah. the JSA, and that was my introduction to those characters for the most part. And then the six part you know finale, uh, World War three. But yeah, I mean I agree with you, and I think. It's one of those things if someone said, like, what's the one arc from this run? Like, I can't read the whole thing. I can't read 40 yeah. issues. What's the one arc that I have to read? You would give them Rock of Ages. Absolutely. Right? I mean, yeah. it really encapsulates, I, I think, probably the best of this entire entire run. So what, what, uh, what I loved about this, uh, especially upon reread, and especially in conjunction with World War III, it delights me to no end. First of all, you know, we talk about these great treatments of, of – I mean, all of the characters, especially Aquaman and Martian Manhunter, Lex Luthor too. I mean, I love the mm-hmm. way Morrison handles Lex. And, you know, this is, you know, at a weird time in the Superman books, and he has recently returned to prominence in the super titles, right? He had made the deal with Neron in Underworld Unleashed, and that rejuvenated the cloned body that he had been living in, posing as his own son. Uh, yeah. So now he's back as Lex Luthor. And, like, right before this, in the Superman books, he was able to beat all of the charges against him in court. Uh, he had this whole ploy where they wheeled in um, a, a Lex Luthor clone 
the like this, you know, uh, degenerating, you know, cackling madman of a clone and pinned everything on the clone. Uh, and Lex was off scot-free. And in a nice bit of synergy, there was one of the issues that I think we covered in a, in a prior episode where Lex says like, oh, I've got to go uh, see about destroying the JLA. And it's like, see upcoming issues of JLA. <laughs> so, you know, they, they were, there was a nice little bit of synergy there. I love That's this. Awesome. I love the treatment of Lex. I love this whole idea of attacking the JLA as if you were performing a corporate takeover. Yep. And then of course the Batman of it all where Batman's like, well, he doesn't know that he's going up against someone who's better at corporate takeovers than he is Bruce Wayne. Yeah. But the thing that just tickles me is how both here in rock of ages and then later in world war three, the what, what <laughs> like in any other run, what would be the centerpiece of each arc, the injustice gang, like in both instances, <laughs> like they're just overshadowed by the dark side of it all. And then by the yeah. Mageddon of it all, it's like they're it's and it's, it's crazy. Like that's just how big and to, to keep going back to this word relentless, just like how big this run is, where even when you're dealing with the injustice gang, it's yeah. like they're just sort of. I don't know, more of a, of a, of a, of a hindrance or an inconvenience. Like there are far larger forces at play. And I just love that Lex keeps picking the worst time. <laughs> all this <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> There's right at the beginning of rock of ages, Connor's sitting with Kyle and at the diner and he goes, yeah, like, I don't even know how good I'm going to be up against someone like, you know, dark side. And like, it's proven by the end of this arc, just like, Perfect synergy between, you know, front and back end of these issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and uh, the Flash's other line of like, uh, guys, it's getting cosmic here. I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know it's, it's great stuff. I, I, you know, I, I love sort of both prongs of rock of ages where we're dealing with, um, again, Lex's corporate takeover, this whole idea of, you know, what is it? Uh, you know, kind of isolating the figureheads, right? They get Superman and Martian Manhunter on that decoy satellite, um, headhunting the young hotshots. You know, we get, yeah. you know, Cersei in, intervening with uh, with Connor and uh, and Kyle and, you know, Connor seemingly, you know, seemingly being tempted, right? To the point where he goes to to Lex and he's like, I'll, I'll help you, like, as long as you don't hurt anybody. Um, and, and of course, well, I guess this is an instance of Batman, you know, uh, always being very far ahead where he has multiple... You know, he, he's paid off Mirror Master, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, of course, Connor hasn't truly turned. Uh, and then we find out that Plastic Man has uh, taken out the Joker and uh, and is impersonating him. So uh, it, it all comes together very nicely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really just such a fun run. It's highly recommend anybody to read that one, you know, that I, I think we covered it in more detail in the other episode, but. Yeah, I can't sing its praises enough. It, it really is great. One thing, one line that stood out this time was, I think it's Superman, right? Who says, sort of chastises Bruce for paying off McCullough, Mirror Master. It's like, you, you know, you, he's yeah. a mercenary. You paid him. And Bruce is like, he's, you know, all the money is going to the restoration fund for the orphanage he grew up in. He's like, never underestimate the sentimentality of a Scotsman, um, yeah. which a nice, you know, a, a nice bit coming from Morrison. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I wrote down here that it feels like everyone's first day on the job always like that, like same chaotic energy is throughout this entire run. Like you, I mean, you felt it like being at a job for the first time and like you're, you're getting stuff thrown at you all the time. And oh, it, this whole run feels like 
the worst first day on the job at all times. <laughs> you know, that is a great way of putting it, actually. I, I think that does... I think that does capture the feeling of a lot of this. And in fairness, it's it's always a new threat that they're coming up against, right? And it, yeah. it, it always seems to catch them off guard. <laughs> and they, they're always up against the ropes before they rally. Uh so it like they 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 do always hit those same beats, but they're still always such such a joy to watch play out. And again, it's just like what like I said, this the scope of this where we begin Rock of Ages with these hard light holograms, uh these yeah. evil corrupted counterparts of the JLA, the, you know, the, the, the revenge squad. And again, I mean, like this could have been the basis for its own arc, but again, it's only yep. this small piece because we have, um, an evil corrupted version of Metron, as we find out, uh, sending, uh, Kyle, Arthur and, um, Wally on this journey through, through space and time to find the philosopher's stone, which of course yeah. Lex has had in his possession all along and uh, prior to them ultimately correcting the timeline here, you know, what, what would have happened is Superman would, would apprehend Luther, destroy the Philosopher's Stone, and this would then allow Darkseid to come to Earth and seize power. And that's the future that our trio ultimately arrive in. We were talking off mic. I was saying, you know, I was reading this and it was unclear to me exactly why the destruction of the Philosopher's Stone would allow Darkseid to come to power. And it's not said explicitly. The only thing I could think of is that that could have been used to stop him. And then absent that, he has a clear path. Is, is there anything else that you've ever kind of pondered on that note? No. Did you notice it in use anywhere? Like, did you, in like during the like finale, during World War III, did you notice it in use? Is it representative of the cosmic key that um, Prometheus is using potentially? I mean, I really couldn't say, no. That's the only thing I would say is like the cosmic key kind of has a similar, you know, pattern to the Philosopher's Stone when it's in like its raw form. So I'm unsure. Like it doesn't pop up. It's not very clear, but I mean, I the way that everything else is seeded throughout this, I don't think maybe it's something. I would say that the fault's maybe on me versus the the, the writer at this point. I'm sure there's something we're missing. I mean, I know the the, yeah. the war logog, right? Uh, it does come back in one million, and that's what Our Man uses in part to help resurrect Lois Lane in the far future. So I mean, like it, okay. it comes up again, but yeah, I mean, as far as again, exactly how that how its destruction would pave the way for Darkseid, I'm not entirely clear. But in any yeah. event, I'll go with it. And look, when we're in that future sequence, I mean, you get to see the fulfillment of the threat that Darkseid always presents. Like, this is what would happen if he takes over the Earth. You know, people are, you know, sent up to the moon to be processed and to be, uh, you know, sort of bombarded with this anti-life equation. It takes away their free will and their hope and all that. And, of course, we have a ragtag bunch of, uh, of freedom fighters and, uh, you know, Connor Hawk and Ray Palmer. I mean, they get some great moments. Um, you know, Batman, as always, falls to the Omega Beams. It's, you know, we talked yeah. about this last time, but it's like, you know... That's an absolute, I guess, when you have one yeah, of these Morrison written uh, dark side go through stories. time. <laughs> Poor Kyle's always getting changed into something. In any of these like apocalyptic things, he's always having to be transformed into, you know, this time he's like halfway to being a parademon. <laughs> like, I know. I know. Well, I love when we get to Crisis Times 5, when he's in the fifth dimension with Captain Marvel and he's like, and Kyle 
you know, thinks to himself, he's like, why am I always like sent into these other worlds, other dimensions? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that bit of uh, meta self-awareness was, it was pretty funny there. I like that. But yeah. yeah, I wanted so much more detail in issue 10. Like I just, I just loved, you know, everything about, um, or was it 11? I forget, but I whatever, you know, Kyle's time in that, and and wonder world and all of that i just wanted so much more of that i wanted to you know more about all of those aspects and i think that every like page in that could have been its own story <laughs> it's just one of those great comics you would want more of that see that's i know, that's, I know. A, <laughs> that's a difference between us i was like i'm good i, pro- I probably could have done with a few less pages of that <laughs> 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 For me, I was, I, I was good, but I, I, I could definitely, I like that totally tracks. Like I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure, you know, you, you would enjoy that. I would love a 12 part series of Kyle's three months in, <laughs> in his mind. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they come out and again, look folks, if you want more talk on Rock of Ages, again, we did that whole other episode. So I don't want to make it sound like we're barreling through it, but we, we did, we did do uh, you know, more thorough coverage uh, of it in an earlier episode. Yeah. So from there, we get to this two-parter, right? Because at the end of Rock of Ages, Superman is like, um, we're officially disbanding the Justice League. They've been warned by Metron, the, you know, the 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 real good Metron, uh, that you are merely forerunners prepare for the fortification of the Earth. And like, they're, they're told that this larger threat is looming. Uh, and so they end up uh, disbanding, but then very shortly thereafter, coming back together with an expanded roster. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I remember, I remember as a kid reading the end of Rock of Ages and like when he says the JLA is officially disbanded, I was like, wait, what? And this is the last issue and all of that. Like it really, again, for a kid reading this at the time, it definitely, it definitely had my attention. And then we get the new members. So, I, I mean, I guess just big picture. And as far as the new members that we're talking about, Steel, Huntress, Plastic Man, uh, Oracle, their secret, you know, their secret member, uh, Barda and Orion, who... They don't really have a choice about, but they're, <laughs> they sort of thrust themselves upon the league yeah. uh, and Zoriel. So we go from, you know, seven to 14. What were your thoughts on the new members? Oh, I, I loved it. I think, you know, having Huntress come along, especially with where she was in comics at that time, she was one of my favorites when I was a kid, um, you know, to have her be there to be able to like witness like what Batman sees is like non-lethal heroism is like a really brilliant for her arc. And then, you know, steel deserves it. <laughs> I mean, steel is a power player. He is up there with, you know, for he's like, everyone's like forge almost from like the X-Men. He's like, he's that guy who can bring the tech and the understanding of that to a group. I feel like got to have your engineer. <laughs> Well, you know, what's interesting with the Huntress, I agree with everything you said, but you know, when we get to the end of World War III, we, we leave, like her arc in this ends uh, with her in the ghost zone with Prometheus, right? And she's about to kill him and Batman yeah. intervenes and he's like, your membership is revoked. Yeah. And that's kind of it. Did that feel, did that feel appropriate for you, to you as an ending for her and, and her arc and all this? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, Batman can always be visualized as kind of a, an emotionally abusive, you know, parental figure, you know, 
at times, sometimes actually abusive when he backhands Robin in the All-Star. But makes him eat rats. I think yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, you know, he he has his code and he will never break it. And if people don't fit into that, they're not a part of his world. He doesn't want to even acknowledge them. You know, he he'll I think at that point he basically gives her the cold shoulder from that point on. And it's Nightwing that's the only one that sees any redeeming qualities in her. And she feel I remember her feeling terrible after that. And like in her arc, she like kind of even went a little bit more brutal. And then her and Dick Grayson kind of have this moment where he's like, listen, you know, you know how dad can be. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it I mean, it, it certainly tracked for me. And as far as the Batman of it all, I guess the Huntress of it all is where, I don't know. I mean, it probably was realistic. You know, maybe it would have been a little too naive to think that, oh, she's, you know, just kind of going to change who she is. Right. And, but there, I don't think there was anything that showed her that you didn't need to be lethal, especially with someone like Prometheus. Like it's once again, that Superman question that I've changed my opinion on at the end with Zod, like Prometheus if she did kill Prometheus there, then um, what happened in that terrible uh, run with where Prometheus was Ollie and masquerading as Ollie would never have happened later on. Oh, was wait a minute. Where Arsenal goes? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that was okay. Gotcha. Without, if, if Huntress had killed him, we would never have had that. <laughs> I'm with Huntress then. I know that's <laughs> I'm 100% with Huntress. Oh, that was a rough run. Yeah. I remember that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as far as the, this expanded membership again, you know, very, and obviously this came before, but you know, very reminiscent of what we would see down the line on the justice league unlimited animated series where they yeah. expand their ranks. And what I love about this is, you know, the characters they pick f- for us as fans of the characters, like, of course it makes sense, but on paper, I just think these were very interesting picks, right? Like, yes, as someone who's following the Superman books and loves Steel, of course I want Steel there. But at the same time, if they had gone with, and off the top of my head, I'm hard pressed to think of like, oh, who would have, who would have been sort of a bigger name, you know, so to speak or something yeah. like that. But I loved how this, these picks, you know, you saw the strategy involved, right? In terms of who they brought in, what they all brought to the table. Uh, and the fact that they were, you know, characters who didn't have their own books for the most part right and i think that gives you a little bit more freedom and i think it really helped round out the team i i I really uh i was a big fan of of this of this expanded lineup and and a big fan of prometheus did you get a chance to read that new year's eve uh special his backstory i thought so good yeah and like morrison was able to fit his own like parents backstory in too because his parents were like 60s revolutionaries that were like breaking into like nuclear facilities to like spray paint and like protest them so like he was able to kind of like take his own origin story and like twist it for evil <laughs> oh i didn't even i didn't even know that backstory oh yeah. that makes me that makes me like it even better yeah it's so good i and i i loved prometheus as a character which is you know what i mean another underutilized character i feel like because after this he does not touched until that green arrow run or what, what i think it was like the cry for justice yeah i don't think he was really around until that you know, that cry for justice thing. Look, I love James Robinson. He's in my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country. He has a great yeah. moment. Every time we have a screening of that thing, he gets a big laugh. Love the guy. Yeah. I've loved a lot of his work. That Me cry, too. That cry for justice miniseries. 
you know, they didn't need to take it so literally. I mean, it was like page after page of characters literally saying like, justice. Yeah. Anyway. I want to, I, I want to retouch that one at some point. I want to kind of dive in and learn more about it because I, it was like such a visceral reaction from fans. And like, I remember it was one of the things that I remember not enjoying and Prometheus played such a huge part of that. And I, I, love this character from these two issues he you know the end of issue the his first issue he beats up batman and throws him like he's nothing yeah i mean that's the thing they really they set him up you know when when you think about look how hard it is to introduce a new character a new villain or otherwise but you know to, to really introduce a character that makes that kind of impression and that feels like they can go toe-to-toe especially even with just one of these characters, let alone the entire JLA. And I think Morrison was able to accomplish that. It was cool. This was the first time I had finally read that New Year's Evil special that gave us Prometheus's origin because uh, sort of the setup for this is that the JLA has invited the the press to the moon to unveil the new lineup. And there's this contest winner, right? Someone who like created a superhero costume and backstory, Retro Man, right? Uh, and he's going to be going up there, but Prometheus kills this guy and takes his place. And when you read just the JLA issues, he mentions, like you see Retro Man and then you find out that it's actually Prometheus, but you don't see any of the lead up to that. So that New Year's Eve special, you know, filled in some, uh, some gaps and obviously gave us the Prometheus backstory of everything you're saying with his parents being these, uh, these outlaws who were, you know, go out and and ship with Tibet. Yeah. 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 It, it tied a lot together, but you know, (laughs) did you watch Chuck? any chance no i didn't but i've heard good things it's a it's a great show you know the uh, old nbc series but in that you know the the main character chuck bartowski he is uh implanted with this this intersect in his head that allows him to download information and then later physical skills and that's as i was look it always comes back to tv for me supernatural chuck but as i'm reading this again like it what prometheus is able to do with those discs where, you know, he can sort of download, you know, all of these martial arts skills into his central nervous system. Uh, again, just felt very, very much like the intersect from Chuck. Uh, yeah. And it also, they think this also predates the Matrix, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Well, what was Matrix? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah. 99. Yeah. yeah. So, like, those ideas coming from comics. <laughs> I know that was pretty cool. And yeah, to see him beat Batman with, with all these, uh, you know, martial arts abilities and he takes over Steel's armor, he's, you know, instructs him to, you know, walk as far as he can and then throw the hammer. And of course, it's only Plastic Man that, that uh, is able to, <laughs> to, to stop the hammer and, and help. Turn I love tide. Plastic Man in this. Like it, 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 he's not as humorous as you would think, but he adds this element of humor, but he's useful. He's not, he's very useful. <laughs> Um, I think this Prometheus run is like a masterclass on introducing a villain. Like how I was talking about like Aztec, you know, you, you, tragic and all of this. If you want to like introduce a great heel character, a great villain type, like you got to have him beat the toughest guy all around. And he comes in and he wrecks the Justice League. And of course, like as a kid, you're going to be like, oh, this guy is crazy or, oh man, this guy is so cool. He's so strong. Like, you know, those aspects that kids look for it's going to connect with them. And it's, I think it's genuinely a masterclass on introducing a villain. It's very similar to what hush does and why hush was so well, liked. you know, he shows up and he orchestrates this whole thing around Batman and incorporates all of his villains and all of that, even though it's 
Riddler, I guess. But, <laughs> um, but you know, you're, you're, you connect that with Hush, just like with Prometheus. It's this beautiful takedown of the Justice League that cements him as a real villain of them. And the fact that he's ultimately taken down by a whip to the balls by Catwoman. It's part like, it's great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Who had been impersonating Cat Grant. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's great. <laughs> the cat within the cat. Yeah. yeah. I know. It's good stuff. Funny little bits too. Like at the beginning of that two-parter where Martian Manhunter is shape-shifting into Clark Kent because Clark has also been invited up to the moon, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's still calling Lois Miss Lane. And she's like, you got to call me Lois. They're going to think our marriage is in ruins. You know, it's like little, 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 little touches like that. Uh, yeah. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, I, I, I neglected to mention this when we we're talking about the end of Rock of Ages, but just as far as the Superman of it all in this, it's just one page, but it's, uh, I love the scene at the end of Rock of Ages between Superman and Lex where electric yeah. Superman, you know, teleports into, into Lex's office. And, you know, the whole thing there was that, uh, the Superman revenge squad had, had caused a number of civilian deaths during their first attack. And, uh, Lex at the climax of rock of ages actually uses the philosopher's stone to essentially undo that. Right. And it allows yeah. him to get away with it. Right. Like, what are you going to arrest him for? No one actually died. Uh, but you know, Superman has this moment with him where he's like, I, I think there's good in you. Right. I don't, Batman thinks you just did this to get away with it. But like, I think you wanted to, you know, undo those deaths. I think there's a good man in there. And Lex is like, yeah, you would think that, wouldn't you? And I just, I, I like that back and forth, that one page. And it was, uh, I thought it was very effective. Yeah, I think so too. I genuinely love those interactions there. It's like the, the, the perfect epilogue to always have for those two. I know whether it's Superman and, you know, this is a little twist on the typical Superman floating outside the window right now. He can just kind of beam himself in. <laughs> uh, so from here we go to, uh, there's a four part fill in, not, I don't want to say fill in, I mean, but four issues written, guest written by Mark Wade, which again, we didn't read specifically for this. Uh, during those issues, classic red and blue Superman, uh, re- rejoins the team. So we're now out of the electric era at this point. And we get this two-parter with Sandman and again, Starro the Conqueror. And Starro had played a role in that JLA Secret Files and Origins issue right yep. before the JLA had, you know, fully officially formed. They had taken over the town of Blue Valley, Nebraska, uh, where Wally is from. And uh, Spectre, right, had wanted them to sort of, you know, kind of let events play out because if they could intervene and then the JLA get taken over, that could just be an absolute disaster. And the workaround there is that the JLA have Spectre remove their powers, right? So even if they are taken, they won't be able to cause as much damage. And of course they save the day. But now we have um, everyone except Blue Valley and the JLA, basically everyone who had um, already encountered Starro, they remain awake, but everyone else is asleep and they're trapped in this dream and, and everything. Uh, real quick, let me just say that Secret Files and Origins issue, I remember, I don't remember what it was called, but on Central Avenue in Hartsdale, New York, there was a like a stationery store. And it's like there's an H Mart there now next to it. It's you know, like New York KB Toys used to be on Central Avenue. Yeah, yeah. It was like a, next to that strip. But anyway, uh, I remember being in the stationery store and seeing JLA secret files and origins number one. And again, I'm a little kid at this point. I don't know. And I remember asking the cashier, I'm like, is this the first issue of the series? Like I thought it was JLA number one. 
And yeah. of course the guy was like, yeah, it's number one. And it wasn't, you know, right? It's just, <laughs> except for one shot. <laughs> and maybe that was expecting too much. But I always remember that issue because I always remember it, like having it and thinking that it was the first issue and then realizing that it wasn't. But anyway. Well, those were always so cool when you had like the character breakdowns of like their abilities. I, I, I love those secret files when I was younger. Same. Now I was just like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> just like, those are those are the pages that I like glanced and skipped through. <laughs> but now going back, so again, that secret files issue gives us the background, the backstory with this version of Starro. But now we get into this two parter here, JLA twenty two and twenty three with Sandman. I know I have to confess as much as I know it's a classic. Everyone reveres it. I have still not read Sandman, so Daniel appearing didn't didn't do as much for me, but I yeah. definitely recognized the importance of it. But I know it resonated more yeah. with you. No, it was really cool because I had no concept of who what Sandman was when I was younger. And now that I'm a fan of it, um, you know, I it was cool to see him because I didn't know if he was ever utilized again. You know, because he's kind of at the very end of Sandman, kind of takes over in a sense, and it was very interesting to see a character that I thought. I it's I didn't realize how much Sandman interacts with the DC universe outside of, you know, that one death issue. And I'm starting to notice more and more that a lot of the Vertigo stuff did cross over more than I had initially realized. So that was cool to me. Um I'm sure you're on Mike San Gregorio's good list now because he can't stand Sandman. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eh, interesting. I, I joke around with him about it. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah. you two are, are, are you know among the the biggest Morrison fans I know, and you guys seem pretty similarly aligned on a lot of stuff. But so he's not a, he's not a Sandman Sandman fan. Not a Sandman guy. All right. I do. I mean, at some point, I will at least try. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it was still cool to see the character utilized, and and yeah. obviously, I appreciated the role that. Superman played in all of this, right? Where there's this one boy, Matthew Haney, right? In this dream world who, you know, knows that something's not right and like can half remember Superman, but can't, can't quite get all the way there. Uh, and so Superman and Kyle and Wonder Woman, right? Those are the three who go into the yeah. the dream world and, uh, you know, sort of that belief in Superman is able to help them, you know, turn the tide. So eh, it was, it was nice. And then, you know, when everyone wakes up and you find out that Matthew Haney is not a little kid, right. But is this, um, you know, a, a adult homeless person on the street. And then you see Daniel kind of walking away and he's got this like hat full of gold at the end. Oh, this was a nice payoff. It was really cool. And I, I mean, that's everyone's dream, right. That we're kind of stuck in the world without Superman, but we'll wake up and there we are in like this more interesting Superman world. It's kind of where uh, a lot of comic book people think about, you know, deeply. Sometimes we all kind of want that more interesting life sometimes, but at the same time, do we really want to deal with crises every day? <laughs> like that's We have our own small crises. I would much rather that than world ending ones all the time. For sure. For sure. I will also <laughs> say, you know, Starro, right? So iconic. And so, you know, hand in hand when you think Justice League. Uh, and I yeah. thought this was a cool take, you know, beyond just the typical star on the face mind control, but the whole dream aspect I thought was a cool, uh, a, yeah. a cool touch to add to it. We yeah, go. I love, yeah. I love, I love Starro. And I actually watched that, uh, Starro scene from the James Gunn suicide squad again. And it, it's the, the silliest of characters and one of the most terrifying concepts as well, I think. 
it kind of is manages to be both of those things. Uh, something about Sandman that I think you might want to touch on at some point, even if it's like a one-off like thing, there's an issue where all of the elder gods of DC are basically having a meeting before like, like the big bang almost in a sense. And, uh, Rao is there. And so like Superman's deity is there, like at this meeting, like talking about like what his views of the universe would be. And he's kind of this embodiment of Superman as well. Oh, interesting. And that's, yeah, and so, where is that? It's in Sandman. So oh, it's okay. like later in one of the like later issues of Sandman. All right. Just something I thought you might find interesting. All right. I'll have to check that out at a minimum, <laughs> at least that. Oh yeah. Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join All Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow All Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw Yeah! Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. So from there, yeah. we go to this three-part Ultramarine Corps uh, storyline where, uh, you know, we have this 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 new team uh, who seemingly got their powers when they encountered this other dimension, but it turns out that's bogus. That's a cover story concocted by General Wade Eiling. And uh, in fact, this team, uh, you know, was genetically altered and they're not going to last long. And Eiling himself has uh, created this plan to transplant his consciousness from his own body into the body of the Shaggy Man, uh, who is quickly shaved, um, <laughs> gets a gets a new look. I love that. <laughs> but you know, we have, you know, we have essentially the you know this rogue military unit waging war against the Justice League and the Justice. What I guess what I liked about this more than anything was just the Justice. How taken aback. The Justice League are. I mean, kind of like what you were saying. It's always like the worst first day. But again, this too is a new wrinkle. This isn't some external threat. These aren't alien invaders. It's like their own government, right? Even though, yeah. you know, they're going against uh, the, the, the president and everything. But uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was cool just to kind of get their their reactions, their shock and horror at, at everything. Uh, what, what was your take on this on this arc? Um, I wasn't the biggest fan of this arc, but I think it plays an important role in the overall story because it's so at home, you know, the Justice League of America, the JLA, they are the heroes for this country. And in this comic book series, they've kind of taken on a more international and cosmic and scale. So, of course, a natural reaction to that would be the United States government being like, well, we need to get new nukes, you know, since the other ones are doing whatever they want. And so it makes it's it's a logical like point to have in this run. And it's also a foil to the next arc, which is completely like 
wonky and crazy and fifth dimensional. So you have this one that's very, very much based and grounded on Earth and in reality versus this next the arc that follows, which is kind of out in, you know, other dimensions. That Now, that is a great point. And and it also establishes Eiling as the general, right? This shaved shaggy yeah. man, and he'll become part of the, the next iteration of the Injustice Gang in World War Three. So he gets him set up for that, and you know he's teleported to this you know asteroid belt at the end of the story, and that's where we pick up with him later. So there's some good setup there, but no, that is a great point. And you know what's funny? So again, I guess going back to sort of our frame of reference at the time, you know, this series is called JLA. Yeah. And yes, we know what it stands for, but it's called JLA. It's not called Justice League of America, like yeah. all the other iterations before and since, or even if it was Justice League Europe or Justice League International, you had that context like right in the title here. And it's funny because we had this and then very shortly thereafter we had JSA. So, you know, there's this whole stretch, again, during, for both of us, like a very formative yeah. early time and it's JLA and JSA. And you know, it's only kind of what came after and then and taking a step back and looking at what came before, you realize that was an outlier. And I wonder, and I'm, I'm sure this maybe has been, you know, spoken about at some point in some interview, but I'm curious like what the rationale was for calling this JLA. Was it to your point because the stories were going to kind of take on such a cosmic biblical scale that Justice League of America kind of felt too small? Like, I, I wonder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I that's what I would assume, but I, I I don't know all the details on that. I know that it's a very easy way to get away from that, and so it recalls, but is also new sounding. So it's very good branding, I think, because everybody calls them the JLA or the JSA. You know, it's not the Justice Society or the Justice League as much as I think amongst fans and people inside. They it's JLA JSA for sure. I think it was a brilliant rebranding. Well, so speaking of JSA, at the very least, <laughs> yeah, 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 we get this four-part Crisis Times Five arc, where uh, we meet uh, JJ or Jakeem Thunder, yeah. right? Who uh, is in possession of the uh, what? What we'll come to learn is this: the Pink Genie from the Fifth Dimension. Uh, you know, formerly the Thunder, known as the Thunderbolt, uh, as part of the JSA. And this brings the JLA into contact with the surviving members of the Justice Society of America, Alan Scott, Ted Grant, Jay Garrick, Hippolyta. And I was thinking about this. I mean, other than what I saw of them in Zero Hour briefly, right, in that uh, mid-90s event, I mean, this was really like my true introduction to the JSA. And this was so close. I mean, they're the JSA relaunch led by Goyer, James Robinson, Jeff Johns came pretty shortly thereafter this, like within the next mm-hmm. year or so. Uh, yeah. So this like really teed that up and was very much kind of how I, how I got to know these characters. So I've always kind of always looked back on this fondly because this got me, you know, it's funny, like thinking back on it. Yeah. I don't know what I have been as interested in that relaunch. Had I not read this? Probably not. So I, I do credit this with a lot because I was a huge fan of that series. I think I was I was lucky because around this time period, anything Kyle Rayner I would pick up, and there was this um, I f- mini series. I think I forget who drew it. I, I got to look it up again. I don't remember a lot about it outside of like the feelings I had connected with it because it's you know kid memories. Um, and it was Kyle and Alan and Wally and Jay, and it was just the four of them in this like little mini series that I had read and it was like Jay teaching Kyle and I mean, uh, 
sorry, other way around, Alan teaching Kyle and Jay teaching um, Wally. And it was just this really cool, like, you know, like grandpa and, you know, grandson story. So it was really something that I had connected with. And that was my introduction to the JSA. And then, you know, this obviously built on that. So I already had an idea of who the Sentinel and Jay Garrick Flash were. Gotcha. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff in here we get. So again, you know, we had had this Thunderbolt in the Justice Society of America. I mean, to my knowledge, people correct me if I'm wrong, I think this was the first time that it it was established that they, that it was a fifth dimensional being, a la Nixus Pitalik. Yep. Uh, And we so have, we have this war between, uh, between the pink Thunderbolt and the blue one. And then ultimately they'll uh, kind of combine into purple at the end. Mm -hmm. But along the way we have uh, Captain Marvel intervening, you know, when he knocks out Superman with that punch, that was not my favorite. Yeah. That was not my favorite (laughs) part of all this, but it's fine. Oh, you don't like that. His magic punch (laughs) took out your guy. (laughs) Not my favorite. Not my favorite, but it's okay. You have to give Captain Marvel something to do. I get it. It's okay. (laughs) Hmm. But, I wonder what that says. Does that mean that if they got into a real serious fight, that Superman would be on the ropes there? I think Superman would be all right. We've seen enough instances where he <laughs> uh, can, can get one over. It's all right. But uh, this is, I think, this is what I think we were referring to earlier, where uh, Spectre is imprisoned, and there's this whole world that's that's building up around him, and Zariel and and uh, Sentinel have to figure out how to free Sentinel or free Spectre without killing everyone and everything on this world. And so they accelerate the life cycle so of the planet. Cool. It is really cool, right? That's so like Star Trekky and so cool. I just love that. That's like though I love those high concepts like that that are tragic and beautiful all the same. Yeah. That was that was a really that was a really cool bit. We also find out that uh Ted Grant, Wildcat, has nine lives. Right. He stood out so much in this to me. Like I remember like I've always loved Wildcat, and I think this might have been why I have always loved Wildcat, because he was just so cool in all of this. <laughs> yeah, he was. No, it was uh, it, it was really cool. Like, it was great to meet them in this way. And again, now in, in, in a reread, to sort of see this early step, right, in what would be the ultimate uh, reformation of the Justice Society. So it was, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a fun one. And Again, I, like, I, I, I do credit Howard Porter with this because, you know, this whole extended sequence where Kyle and Captain Marvel are in the fifth dimension and they're, I, I mean, I don't know, I can't even describe it, but it's, uh, I feel like in lesser hands, it could have become like this jumbled mess, but I really felt like yeah. I was, I was on board for their part of the story there. Yeah. And I have to, you know, thank our man for moving the story along at one point. <laughs> I, I've like, I've never seen a moment so clear when a writer has like walked themselves into a situation that they don't know how to get out of and then they like insert something to just move it along it was so clear that morrison was like i need to i need to get out of this how did i how did i why did i write this scene and then you see just at the end like our man being like all right i need to this is going to take forever this is going to be useless and he transports them midway through the speech i think it's just a brilliant transition <laughs> it was. And of course, you know, this hour man from the 853rd century was sort of coded with, uh, you know, Rex Tyler's DNA. So they had that connection point. It was, I mean, look, uh, this will probably be a, another kind of episode at some point down the line. I won't belabor the point here, but this was, uh, this whole stretch in the DCU, um, the late nineties into the early to mid two thousands, when you had the JLA and the JSA side by side, and you really got to see, um, 
the the dynamic and the function that each one can serve and they they were distinct and it was such a it was such a fun time yeah. anyway i know yeah, the jsa is getting some play again now but they've been off the board for so long but uh and with that we get into morrison's final farewell arc world war three which you know brings all of these threads together so like we had said before we have another attack by the injustice gang this time it's lex it's prometheus it's it's general eiling and it's uh queen b um but we also have now the the final arrival of mageddon this you know the weapon of the old universe that is uh, again increasing everyone's uh, aggression uh, across the world and, and causing all these conflicts and will ultimately you know result in the annihilation of of everything so I mean, this this was big. This was a lot of a lot of moving parts, a lot of characters. I mean, what uh, I don't know. Just I mean, we can un- unpack it as more specifically, but just big picture. How did how did you feel this served as the culmination of Morrison's work on this title? I think it was a great endpoint. Um, you know, Rock. He could have ended with Rock of Ages, and I would have been happy with this run. But we got more, and that's great. And I think that this kind of takes in everything that was built up before, even the stuff from like the Secret Origins and getting more Prometheus always is fantastic. And I like that, you know, Batman wanted to kind of have some vengeance on him. And there's like really it it, it feels like a great series finale. Yes. Like it it has like if this was a TV show and this was the show that we got over a few seasons or one season I would be so satisfied with this ending. I agree. I big surprise. I also put it in television terms, but I felt the same way. Like it really, <laughs> like it really had that feeling of all of these threads coming together. Right. Cause, and, and that's the benefit I think of how Morrison seeded all of this throughout where, you know, we've been told for so, so long about why Barta and Orion and even Zario were there. And it's like, okay, now you know, now we get to see all of this come to a head. And I, I really, I did like the structure of it where we start with the more, you know, tangible, I guess, threat of the, uh, of the injustice gang. Right. Yeah. And they've, uh, you know, they're detonating explosives on the watchtower and, and all of this. But then we have this larger threat that we've been building to all along, which essentially just this embodiment of evil, right. Yeah. That is going to require everyone coming together. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. I guess people's mileage on something like Mageddon will vary because, right, he's a he. It's a device, right? Not yeah. not not a character. But I think it I, – I just I think it works. Yeah. I mean, it's it's meant to represent something bigger than Darkseid, which is why I think it was left so ambiguous um, because you can't characterize something like that too much. You can't even give it a voice really because it needs to be something that would – you know, just kind of roll over apocalypse in a sense. And you get that. I mean, it's it's bigger than I think anything's ever been drawn on page as well. When they put it up against Earth, it's massive on the page. You usually see some space there, but they made sure to make that, that there's no space. It's just this giant eye looking at Earth. And that, um, you know, that eye also popped up in a prior issue uh, with Kyle. And then, you know... He knows how to deal with it, and he's the one who uses ex- Lex's uh, ego to kind of get him out of it too, which is an awesome scene. And like, that's Kyle. Kyle knows how to handle these things. He is now a veteran member, in a sense, by this issue. 
I know it was great. He's like, you always say you're smarter than everyone, Luther. Like now's your chance to prove it. I like, it's, it's great. <laughs> you're losing to an eyeball. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, Lex, even as he's coming out from under the thrall of this thing, he still doesn't miss a beat. He's like, I, I, you know, basically like I didn't know what I was doing. Like I was under its control. Like he's already, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, extricating himself from any, any, uh, illegal culpability. So what was the that. line he says at one point? Like, allegedly I was involved with the injustice game. Right. <laughs> yeah. He has a line. I, I think he's talking to Prometheus and he has, there's a great line. I forget what the exact quote was, but he's talking about the Joker and he says something mm-hmm. like he's frighteningly appalling, but like oddly compelling company something something yeah. in that spirit as he's as luther's describing uh, joker i also love the interaction where he's like would you win an award for writing poetry when you were younger <laughs> like, <laughs> just, <laughs> i know and yeah batman gets his gets his revenge on on prometheus he I guess overwrites the disc that Prometheus is is downloading into his nervous system and re- and replaces all of the martial artists <laughs> with with Professor Stephen Hawking. I I read that and I sh- and I like just like was sitting next to uh, Christina and I show it to her and she's like oh and I was like yeah and we were both kind of like oh <laughs> like this is what he did. <laughs> I just very. <laughs> I guess Batman's vengeance holds no bars. No. Yeah. But that, but again, again, going back to this whole idea of series finale, right? Like he had gotten his ass kicked by Prometheus a few arcs before. And now, you know, and now we get the payoff to that. So uh, it it was great. You know, unsurprisingly, uh, it pleased me greatly that so much of this came down to Superman in the heart of Mageddon, you know, initially, overtaken by the the darkness and the despair and the fact that so much of this came down to batman talking clark through bruce talking clark through it yeah uh is is always great right because so much of the dcu just hinges on on these two and kind of everything you know kind of uh extends outward from them so to have such a big piece of this come down to the two of them was great i texted this to you before we recorded because you know, it's funny, we're recording this and people are going to hear this very, very shortly after the two-year anniversary of the release of Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yeah. And there's a moment at the end of the first trailer and, of course, a moment in the movie that's a favorite of mine where, uh, you know, Barry's like, you know, Steppenwolf, like he's faced, you know, hundreds of thousands of these beings on other worlds and he's and he's always won. It's like, what, what chance do we have? And Bruce says, I don't care how many demons he's fought and how many hells, he's never fought us, not us united. Yeah. And... I, you can imagine how delighted I was as I'm reading uh, Morrison's World War Three and Superman struggling against the thrall of Mageddon. And Bruce says telepathically, I don't care if it can destroy every god in every heaven, Clark. It never faced us before. Yeah. I mean, Snyder, Snyder read his Morrison. Yeah, he, I, he definitely did. And it, it's it's a testament to those two characters, you know, it, it, in without. Batman acting as Bruce, like acting as like, you know, his more empathetic side, he wouldn't have been able to get through to Superman and, you know, the darkness would have overcome, but the darkest person who has faced all of these dark things is able to know how to reach the light. And that's the yin yang of the DC universe. There is those two. I know. I love at one point where he says to Clark, he's like, I can't believe I'm having to tell this to you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's, but it's great. And, you know, Superman's able to break free and he realizes that, 
you know, because it's essentially this dark sun, right, within Mageddon. And he's like, I can absorb sunlight. You know, my 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 cells are solar batteries, so it stands to reason I can absorb, uh, you know, anti-sunlight as well. And And he's able to do that. And as he says, doomsday is canceled until further notice. But there was a moment before that that, I, that actually made me tear up where – uh, you had mentioned before about Animal Man, right? Al- Animal Man, yeah. uh, you know, recognized some early signs of the increased aggression, right, uh, in, in the animal world. And he realized that Mageddon was stimulating the reptilian parts of people's brains, right? And, and that's what was leading to this uh, increased hostility. And so he and Wonder Woman and some of the others, right, they come up with this whole plan to try to kind of like block that that ray that's coming from Mageddon to the people of Earth. And they ultimately temporarily turn the population of earth into superhumans yeah for a moment and we get this this scene where and it's if you look at the cover to jla 41 that's sort of what it what it reflects you know you see everyone kind of like flying toward it and i think it's oracle is like what's going on and wonder woman says like i couldn't talk the people out of it like they all said superman saved them so many times they're going to try to do whatever they can yeah and it made me tear up. I've, I've, I've used the analogy of It's a Wonderful Life a bunch of times, but this is another instance where it's like he has saved everybody so many times yep. over and they had a chance to repay him and they took it. And yep. uh, I'll wrap this up because we just passed the two hour mark. But uh, there's something we've talked about in the past. Uh, the, the late, great Tim Sale, he had an issue of that solo series, you know, the artist centric uh, uh, title. And in that, he and Jeff Loeb did sort of a lost chapter that would fit in between uh, Superman for all seasons. And it's this whole sequence of how Clark is on his way to the prom and then he sees a neighbor who's like, whose car is broken down in the mud and he, he goes to help her and then he gets like covered in mud and she just drives off. But Martha's telling the story and she's like, you know, Clark, Clark helps people the way he can because he, assu- like he does what he assumes other people would do if they were able to. Right. Like that's ult- like for him, he's just able to do more, but he does what yeah. he thinks other people would would do. And like this is an opportunity and in, 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 in it's an instance where it's like his faith in people is rewarded. It's like they are now in a position temporarily to help in the way that he does and they take it. And I, I just love that. I thought that was uh, was such a beautiful moment. There's it, it, it is. And there's a lot of these t- stories in this time period that kind of can like go right into one another. You can kind of like end this run and then just go and pick up kingdom come and it'll make perfect sense. Like, cause like that's the world that they were left with. Everybody was high super powered. The JSA and JLA were kind of combined. And then now you have kingdom come. It like kind of leads perfectly into it. <laughs> Actually, that's a, a question, big picture question I wanted to ask you because I know we're talking about how, you know, it reflects what was going on in the books at the time and all of that. But uh, in terms of this run's timelessness, how, how timeless yeah. do you do you find it? Um, fairly so. I think the the even though I wasn't the biggest fan of the Ultramarines segment, I think it kind of fits where we're heading towards right now. This kind of increased aggression and you know building up towards potential war, which I know is not the lightest of topics to cover, but. It's kind of why comic books exist in the first place was to get kids through war, in a sense, to get them understanding it, to get them, you know, potentially to see the side of peace and truth and justice more than just blatant warfare. And I think that 
that is what makes this timeless you know it it's ultimately about this ultra war that's occurring and humanity having to you know find peace within themselves to push back against this the idea of war and why it happens Ah, I'm with you. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, right, like for us, there is that heavy nostalgia factor. And like I said, I I read this and it took me right back to the to when I was reading it the first time. But, but I don't think that undercuts the timelessness of it. I I really do think that this is something that, again, I think there's a reason why you can continue to give this run to someone and and it will work. and yeah, in, the, in this final arc, I mean, just so many great moments, a lot of which we've already touched on, but, you know, Zariel dying, going to heaven, rallying the angels, coming back down to earth, uh, Orion finally, you know, getting his chance to unleash his astro force on Mageddon. I mean, you know, Orion's a lot of talk, not not a ton of results, but yeah, still always <laughs> entertaining. Uh, you know, Wonder Woman and Flash and Animal Man, you know, again, coming up with this plan to turn the population into superheroes. Kyle overcoming the interference of Mageddon and getting his ring to work again. I mean, there's just, and of course the Superman and, and Batman uh, and Martian Manhunter of it all. It's a lot of, a lot of great moments. And then we end with our core seven, right? Yeah. You know, initially kind of talking about taking some time off and then they get a call from Oracle about Dr. Destiny threatening to de-imagine Detroit. And our, our last line here where Superman's like, come on, Batman, you know, we're the Justice League, you know, you love it. And then you get yeah. them, you know, charging into action. <sighs> good stuff it's a fantastic run it's you know a testament to grant's work it is a great comic you can give to kids you can give to people who are new to comics you can give to people who you know might have missed this at one point and i think that anyone can kind of connect with these stories there's not anything that's really dating it outside of maybe like mtv generation references every now and then but that's, you know, what the criticism of those characters were here, I think, when people when they first popped up. People were like, oh, what is these MTV jitters? So Morrison was just kind of putting that in there as kind of the, you know, talking point. Uh, you know, I hope people enjoyed this episode. It's funny because, you know, I, I don't love to do an episode where, like, we're just tearing something apart because I don't take delight in that. Um, but you know, most of what we talk about, there's stuff we like, there's stuff we didn't like. And, you know, I, I think that makes it interesting. You know, this is an instance where I can't like, I don't really have <laughs> many critiques like this was, but again, I really enjoyed the conversation. Again, I'm sure the audience did too, yeah. but it's just like, I don't know what to say other than this is, it worked then it works now. It was a, a tremendous delight to revisit and, and, tr- you know, truly a, an all time great run. Absolutely. So you know, we covered a tremendous amount of material in, I mean, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a fair amount of time here, but still, yeah. but still uh, you know, I, I know there's, we didn't go through every, every issue, every beat. There's a lot we didn't talk about, but, you know, we talked about a lot of the big picture stuff and a lot of the specifics that really stood out. So, I, you know, I'm real, I love that we did this and it was so much fun and I appreciate you rereading and, and coming along for the ride on this. Uh, Ralph, where do you want to direct people uh, if they want to check out your, your music? Uh, you can find me mostly on Instagram, just Instagram at Ralph Puma. You can find my music. You can find other things I'm working on. Uh, we're coming up on a 10 year anniversary for some like little series that I made. Uh, so yeah, it's almost been 10 years and there might be a entirely newly re-edited film bite-sized version of it. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that as 
time progresses. How's that for a tease? Oh man, I did not realize it was 10 years. That's insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's very cool. I hope people will, will, will check out your stuff and, and follow you. You know, I'm, I'm a fan and have been and will continue to be. And I hope people will check out your work as well. So Ralph, thank you very, very much. Audience, thank you for tuning in as always. Our Electric Till 1 Million event continues next week. Next week, this is a special one, and it's a perfect follow-up to this episode. So next week, we're going to have a little bit of an interlude, and uh, we have our Justice League animated mixtape episode. So this period, 97 to 99, Superman the Animated Series was running during this time, of course. Now, we've already covered Superman the Animated Series in a series of mixtapes that we did at the beginning of last year. But I wanted Superman the Animated Series to be represented in this run, right? Because it fits in this time period. So what Jeremy and I did, Jeremy was my guest for the Superman uh, mixtapes, and he came back for this. We took a look at a selection of Superman-centric Justice League and Justice League Unlimited episodes. So we're talking about the continuation of Superman the Animated Series in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. It's a really fun episode, and that'll be out next week. I hope you will all tune in and enjoy as always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.